Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight we're talking about the movie that finally has the bravery to take on the most dastardly of all horror monsters, The Swan. It's time to talk about Black Swan. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, my co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I watched a Darren Aronofsky movie. How do you think I'm doing? (laughs) I mean, fair. I got 15 minutes into this and I'm like, really? From the director of Requiem for a Dream? You don't say. <laughs> if I was going to rewatch a Darren Aronofsky movie, I feel like this is the one somehow. This, this beats out Requiem and Pie as far as like things I want to put on right now. Uh, and next up, my frequent collaborator, comics artist and certified uh, vampire aficionado, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm wondering what grapefruit hurt Darren Aronofsky that badly. <laughs> the man has a real dislike of grapefruit. It's true. Yeah, he's grapefruit. I've never been so upset by a grapefruit in my life multiple times. Natalie I mean, Portman, the Oscar, she deserved the Oscar if only for how much enthusiasm she was able to like fake summon for that grapefruit in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, immediately. And we have two very special guests with us tonight. First, editor extraordinaire for IDW and my editor on My Little Pony, a person who has very strong feelings about Bucky Barnes, Megan Brown. How are you tonight, Megan? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really good. Sebastian Sam was in this movie for 30 seconds and I was I was happy. So Yeah, as opposed to most of the guys in this movie, he seemed kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least comics writer, former editor at IDW, and current editor at Boom Studios, uh, the editor who made my lifelong dream of writing a teenage Elsa Bloodstone, beating Capel for the Silver Bat, become a reality, Elizabeth Bry. How are you tonight, Elizabeth? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited that I talked Megan into watching this movie since she didn't know Sebastian Stan was in <laughs> So thank you for giving me the opportunity to it's surprise her the- with that best plot twist in the whole movie (laughs) i was shook it so (laughs) i mean we've been lucky to have a few great like before they were famous appearances on this podcast like uh chris hemsworth uh in cabin in the woods and i feel like sebastian stan showing up here in between hot tub time machine and captain america the first Avenger. yes back before anybody was a sebastian stan Ah. <laughs> finger guns all around now please edit out me being happy about it <laughs> uh guys i'm so glad we made this happen because i do remember there was a point like right when we first started doing this podcast where i was like just powering through a whole bunch of horror movies in october and i remember like going on twitter and seeing you guys doing the same thing and uh, I was like, oh, at some point we should have them on. And like half a year later, I finally got around to being like, oh, yeah, 
that was the thing I wanted to do. So thank you guys so much for, for coming and discussing this uh, <laughs> truly hard to watch movie with us. <laughs> no, thank you for, I mean, like time is, you know, meaningless during a pandemic. So I think the half a year can be forgiven for sure. And honestly, if you had thought of it any earlier, you would have had to deal with me screaming and running out of the room watching Hereditary, which Megan witnessed via Zoom call. Oh, um, it's a stressful movie. <laughs> I'm glad that you had each other, though, in, during well, that experience. Uh, oh, my God. I, just, I, I had a lot of secondhand embarrassment about, the, like, the kid having to go home after the other kid dies. I was like, I can't deal with the embarrassment factor of him having to tell his parents more than anything else in the movie. But, yeah. yeah. That's not that, the movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, someday we're going to have to do that few, movie. Like, it's one of the few scary movies that I've watched that, like, it's genuinely like there's no jumps in that movie, but it genuinely still bothers me to think about it. <laughs> yes, hundred percent. I think about that piano wires like yep. constantly every day. Just the <laughs> violence of it. Sorry again. Sorry, we're here to talk Black Swan, which also I haven't I haven't seen it, and I know it's coming for me like a great white through the cinematic <laughs> waters. I know. Oh my god, prepare yourself. I don't know if you can prepare yourself. Like I, you just gotta go in, Baba Duke fucking wrecked me i think babadook is the closest we've gotten so far to, to yeah. something like hereditary <laughs> which yeah, is babadook, my first episode babadook also messed me up god um we did that episode on election night too so we were all <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a time yeah <laughs> Ooh, difficulties but um. we did find out about the babadong which is a babadook shaped sex toy incredible so. I love that. I, I'm grateful for our Duke episode on election night because now when I inevitably write my own horror screenplay, I can go back and listen to that and be like, oh, that's what madness is like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so that's the only episode that. we've ever had to just like straight up have just like an intermission on because we were all just like so you could hear in our voices just how tired and <laughs> messed up we all were at that point. Yeah. I think at a certain point, we're like, if we never stop recording this podcast, then the world won't end. <laughs> Single-handedly saving the world. All right, so so a little bit about uh, Black Swan before we jump into this one. Uh, as we've already mentioned, it is uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky, uh, who directs all the movies that uh, I hate to watch because they all bother me. Uh, they're all good. Like, you will hear me I mean, you've heard us talk crap about Requiem for a Dream on here a few times. It's not that it isn't good. It's that it's very troubling. Oh, um, no. Requiem for a Dream good. is an incredible piece of filmmaking. It's just, if every film is trying to take you on an emotional journey, uh, Requiem for a Dream is just trying to drive you into the fucking abyss. It's one of those films that I have on DVD and have watched it one time. And I never plan to watch it ever again. But it's so good that I can't get rid of the DVD, even yeah, though I yeah. know I'm never going to open it ever again. The process of watching Requiem for Dream is like is is like the like the way that everybody degrades throughout the course of Annihilation, <laughs> like that they start being <laughs> slowly in mad. Terms, in terms of Aronofsky, Black Swan feels like it goes with the wrestler and is part two of the as of yet uncompleted uh, creative mission kills trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is uh, written by Mark Heyman, 
uh, Andres Hines and John J. McLaughlin. It stars Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis, uh, as well as Vincent Cassell, uh, Barbara Hershey, and Winona Ryder, all horrifying and great in this movie. <laughs> um, and the what it's about, I, I just pulled it off of IMDb, a committed dancer struggles to maintain her sanity after winning the lead role in a production of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Um, as she tries to fight off a competitor with whom she shares a deadly attraction, which boy, uh, that is, that is the description of this movie. Uh, whether or not it's an accurate one, we'll, we'll discuss. Um, I looked up like behind the scenes and one of the first th- or like trivia. And one of the first things that came up was, yeah, the idea of one person being the lead is nonsense. A company <laughs> this size would have dozens of lead dancers, like trading off. That role is insane. Yeah, it would, it would physically break you to do it five days a week. Yeah, especially the the way that they set it up in this movie. Um, guys, I be- I feel like I barely need to ask the question of scare level. Is this spoopy as a not scary, spooky as in a little scary, terrifying as in very scary, or flat at existentially disconcerting? Terrifying to existentially disconcerting. Um, I we we tend to lean, especially lately, we've been leaning towards ex- existentially disconcerting. There are mo- parts in this movie that are legitimately terrifying. Um, and one of the most terrifying scenes has, I don't want to get into spoilers, but, um, you know, I'll just say mom being in the room. <laughs> terrifying <laughs> yeah. in a very specific way. Yes, yes absolutely. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I feel like any movie about overwhelming creative obsession will lead to madness and death is just going right for the jugular <laughs> yeah yeah 100 percent existentially disconcerting for me like from jump from the first frame to the last um and as for trigger warnings uh, i mean this one's got them all uh there's uh, rape and sexual assault insomnia uh depictions of, of mental illness including uh sections that uh that definitely seem like they're depicting ocd uh as well as uh just straight up um mania and um psychosis uh there's auditory and visual hallucinations eating disorders parental abuse body horror uh gaslighting and manipulation public humiliation grooming it's got it all (laughs) when it comes to traumatized by anything it's in here when it comes to foot damage this movie is a straight up fucking saw film god thanks darren (laughs) thanks dare bear I am worried about how many times Quentin Tarantino has watched this movie. Oh, no. I don't know. I don't know if Tarantino would appreciate, like, destruction or harm coming to feet, though. This is his his Halloween tradition. This is the (laughs) greatest horror concept he can... (laughs) If there was a whole movie full of feet, but they get hurt. Yeah, fucked up feet. It's like Faces of Death, but just fucked up feet. I mean, to me, that's what's where a great source of existential horror always comes from is when it's not a monster, it's not a crazy concept or a curse. It's just, hey, here's this normal thing that apps that is totally real and is absolutely happening to people right now. It's a nightmare. Yeah, a lot of this movie doesn't really sugarcoat a lot of things that are actually very real. And, you know, like we, we talk about Requiem for a Dream and drug addiction and stuff like that. I don't want to compare the craft of ballet to an addiction to heroin, but Darren Aronofsky has a way 
of showing some brutal realities um and it's not just him but this this particular movie a lot of the horror just comes from the reality of what people have to deal with uh in performance in ballet in theater um so you know that's there and it is uh visceral yeah for sure uh so i I will go ahead and say that wraps up our non-spoilery section. So if you haven't seen the movie and you tend to, feel free to uh, pause us now and come back when you're ready. Uh, and we're going to go ahead and jump into talking about what actually happens in the movie. Uh, is there anything anybody wants to just talk about right off the jump here? Satoshi Kon. Satoshi Kon. <laughs> we're going to get to Satoshi Kon later, I think. I but... don't think we can talk about Aronofsky without talking about Satoshi Kon. Yeah, um, so... Um... Talk Do we it. all know about Satoshi Kon and the Darren Aronofsky phenomenon? Well, I feel like we should explain it for any listeners who yes. aren't aware of that. Yes. Um, I'll go. go for it. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you. you started it. You should. Yeah, I was just, I, if anybody wanted to jump in and please jump in and correct me because I've, it's been a while since I've, um, I, 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 di- I dived, I dived deep into this dove, drove, um, I'm an artist. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, there was a story, a rumor, mayhaps, that uh, Satoshi Kon's works uh, were the, the the rights to Satoshi Kon's works. Satoshi Kon being the Japanese uh, director of animation, uh, protege of Katsuhiro Otomo, um, who did Akira. Satoshi Kon did uh, Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress. Uh, the the television program Paranoia Agent, um, all animated a series that are very, very um, strong psychological horror. And a lot of scenes of these films by Satoshi Kon show up uh, shot for shot in a lot of Darren Aronofsky movies. So there's a story that Darren Darren Aronofsky bought the rights to the Satoshi Kon films for a live action um, adaptation. Um and just incorporated those shots into his own movies here and there. Um, a lot of people have uh, compared Black Swan especially to Perfect Blue. Um, they're very different films, but they have a lot of the same shots um, and a lot of the same concepts visually. Uh, and of course there is the famous shot for shot Perfect Blue to Requiem for a Dream sequence uh, in the bathtub. Um, now, apparently, according to recent things that appeared on the internet, so take that as you will, um, that Darren Aronofsky only spoke of getting the rights. He never actually got the rights to the Satoshi Kon films. Now, I don't know if that's really scandalous um, because, you know, he didn't really adapt the entire film. Um, he just took some shots. And so there's a lot of uh, dialogue um, argument maybe uh, about whether that is um plagiarism or you know or just an homage um either way i highly recommend the satoshi Kon films especially perfect blue but perfect blue is about um a pop star who becomes an actress um and there's still a sort of loss of innocence situation going on there but um while there's a lot of imagery that the films share, Black Swan is a it is a different animal in, entirely. I, I feel um, like it's inevitable that Perfect Blue will find its way onto this show. I'd love like, to watch Perfect Blue sooner or later. Yeah, but um, again, I I I think that it's important to divorce while you know recognizing the influence of Satoshi Kon. I think it's important to divorce that from 
this movie just because of how specific this movie is about ballet um and the the beauty standard culture of ballet and that particular uh microcosm um but you know they're definitely great movies to compare contrast for sure uh megan or uh no uh, somebody elizabeth you wanted you had something to say about satoshi Kon. it sounded like um, no, it was a lot of the similar <laughs> similar stuff. It's like it's impossible to not look at Aronofsky films and see that Satoshi Kon is a huge influence on his movies. Um, and I love I love Satoshi Kon. So I'm I watch these and I'm like, these are everything. This 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 is just a person who feels the same way as me. But yeah, it's a lot. I was just gonna say the exact same stuff, honestly, down to like thematically there are so many similar things in these movies and of course like Aronofsky is not the only person even in the western movie making world who's obsessed with Satoshi Kon because if you watch Inception and Paprika side by side those two movies are exactly the same but um, yeah (laughs) yeah I don't know where the line is I mean we almost like I feel like at some point we almost brag it's like oh Star Wars A New Hope it's a Kurosawa film but in space isn't right. that isn't that creative? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and then you know, Kurosawa has films that are Shakespeare plays, but in Japan, you know, so it's, it's a it's a weird cycle of influence. It's, I I think like such an interesting way of I think film in particular has such a a fun way of being intertextual that way mm-hmm. that I think like no other art form really does in the same way, except maybe comics. But I might yeah. be you know a little biased we might all be a little biased (laughs) but yeah um I don't think that diminishes from Aronofsky's work or his body of work but it's definitely there and also I want everybody to watch Satoshi Kon movies all all of them they're so beautiful they're so beautifully animated they're so weird and like cool and there's no other movie like any of them even though everyone mimics him yeah um, and now we're, we can never have any more. <laughs> so I'm yeah. like, please, everybody enjoy the ones that exist. Yeah, that's sure. all I got. Megan, did you have any, uh, any thoughts off the top that you wanted to, to get out there? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure we'll probably talk about this like further down the line, but um, I did think it was a choice to not have a woman uh, writer or anywhere kind of involved in the top creative of this film it seems um given that it's so focused on kind of the female experience within places where typically men are holding a lot of power and and kind of um they have that back and forth you know so i'm like i said i'm sure we'll get into that but (laughs) yeah for sure this movie in the character of Okay, how do they pronounce it? Like Tomas, Tomas Leroy is honestly one of the most horrific monsters we've ever covered in this show. And I know this movie doesn't think he's a good guy, but I worry that the movie doesn't realize just how horrific he actually is. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Also, yeah. I forgot the word director for the first hour twenty, so I just have him in my notes as dance boss. <laughs> <laughs> Better to be honest, I love it. What's so yeah. incredible about this is like if this movie was made five years later, this would be a like 
a commentary on what was happening in the Me Too movement. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally different so, movie. Yeah. But because it's not that, it doesn't, it feels like it's forgetting that he's a villain. And like, maybe it's positioning like Mila Kunis too much as the villain in this mm-hmm. movie when she's a person in the exact same position as Nina. But yeah, I think interestingly, the movie is positioning Mila Kunis less that way than like uh, Nina is positioning Mila Kunis as the villain. Um, And in a way, like we'll definitely discuss as we get to the later half of this movie um, because it's, it's not quite what it seems in some ways. Um, What I was surprised, Prize, like I, I don't know why, but I thought there was going to be more Mila who was. I, I was surprised by how little interaction there was there. Or I know there was a still a fair bit, but I don't know. I just in my head, I thought I just thought there'd be a lot more of her. Like I remember, especially in the first hour, like she's very, like she has a very light presence, which I think works, especially as it builds up at the end. But I was just surprised, uh, you know, just because in the marketing they were practically equal. Definitely not how the screen time shakes out in the film. But the interesting thing to me, uh, watching this, I was going back and reading a lot of like retrospectives and what do ballerinas think about Black Swan and things like that. And there's a whole lot of like (laughs) people in ballet professionally that were like, none of this would ever happen. This is so very wrong. You know, this this is not the way this goes, especially about like the, the sexual side of things, specifically that like the, um, <laughs> there seems to be this weird intersection of like, no, this is not notes that this character of Tama would be giving her about being more sexy in her like very, in like the ballet, which is very technical. Is it mm-hmm. a note? Because he gives zero notes about any actual dancing and just fucking sexually harasses people. Yeah, yeah. the well, whole film. Well, at the same time, like. While, we're, while they're talking about that, it's also like, and like two years after this came out, there was a massive scandal about, you know, uh, uh, the creative director at New York Ballet, like sexually harassing, uh, you know, other women that were part of his his company. So I think we're like, uh, interestingly, a lot of the articles were like, this is the wrong kind of sexual harassment as compared <laughs> to what's, what's actually going on. I was like, well, sexual harassment. And sexual assault in movies i mean classically a lot of the time are is so dramatized um and that yeah like you see it's a lot it feels a lot more blatant in film you know it's the the way that people have developed uh ideas of what rape is as opposed to what it actually is you know what i mean like i mean there's there's all kinds of different forms of sexual assault but when people say sexual assault, a lot of the time they say they they think of something that is violent and not something that is insidious and subtle. Um, There's and, a scene uh, in this movie where he sexually assaults her and then scolds her for it, and I had to fucking take a walk after that. Yeah, no, like, this movie is is very blatant, mind. but it does it does address some subtleties of of that kind of manipulation, which I think is important. Um, but there is a lot of this like you know, well, it's part of the business kind of shit. Um, and which I think is just, for me, I've just read it as part of the horror. Um, much like Requiem for a Dream, this movie really succeeds at making what seemingly innocent things that are happening uh, horrifying as fuck. Um, and the Kronos Quartet aren't anywhere. There's, we don't get oh, 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 all the time. 
like in the other <laughs> movie where they're like walking down the street and we're hearing like and like thinking that the world is ending in this case it's swan lake clint manzel is still there but it's all just swan lake um and it still feels like dreadful as i hate with a fiery passion the character of tomas leroy uh that is in no way, shape, or form a criticism of Vincent Castle's acting in this movie because he is phenomenal. He gives a, just an outstanding performance. Everyone in this movie is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all great. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, like, there's, there's five, six, like, major characters in this movie. It's, it's not a big cast. There's a lot of, like, dancers. There's a lot of, you know, people to be in the background. I mean, there is, of course, Sebastian Stan, who's there for all of one scene. <laughs> But like, you know, it's it's notable for being Sebastian Stan. So much Um, credit to Natalie Portman. Like we never leave her perspective. Like she really is in every scene of this movie. Yeah. yeah, And and a lot like you were talking about uh, as far as like the wrestler, it uses that same trick Darren Aronofsky does in the wrestler of just like he just perches that camera right over her shoulder and just, you know, follows her everywhere. Um, and, you know, it doesn't stay there all the time, but there are several, like, scenes of her just walking with the camera, like, just right behind her, seeing what she's seeing. Well, and I think that that really lends to kind of this, like, unreliable narrator that we get, you know? Like, I feel like so often reviewing these characters, especially Mila Kunis's character, Lily, right? Like, through Nina's lens. And so we get a very specific view of her when I feel like parts of of Lily shine through where she is really concerned and she is trying and you can't tell like what is real and what is not. And this like, like extends itself through so much of the film, you know, um, I, I definitely because I'm like, oh, oh I'm going to be clever. I know the tropes. I've seen enough mental spiral movies to know where this is going. I figure like, OK, at some point, my lacunas has to be a hallucination. <laughs> But it, the movie did throw me off with when Lily was a hallucination yeah. and when she was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess let's let's jump into talking about what actually happens in this. Um, and we do open up with a big like uh, dream sequence of Natalie Portman dancing a version of Swan Lake as the White Swan, and she sort of awakes to share with her her mother Erica, who's played by Barbara Hershey, uh, all of about this um and we immediately like can see how just involved erica is with with nina's dance career uh she is definitely a dance mom she definitely like has a a history that we find out of over the course of the movie of having been a ballerina who uh did not have a like a long career because she you know got pregnant and had a kid and she's very much projecting and living through nina's career um and and it complicates a lot of the uh i think the the emotions around this uh emily was asking here how old nina is supposed to be i don't think it ever says what does everybody think no i'm pretty sure they say that she's 28 okay in the movie oh yeah that's right they do say that uh which is which is now crazy yeah um because the very first thing we see of nina she is in a uh like a very pink uh sort of baroque um kids room full of stuffed animals and stuff she is um she is portrayed as uh innocent and um 
you know, unsettlingly so, you know, there's, there's a lot here going on with beauty standards and um, feminine ideals, you know, things like that. I mean, there's, it's, this is already a lot to unravel just with the environment um, and the fact that she's eating grapefruit for breakfast and nothing else. Um, Like you might as well just eat salt water for breakfast. Like Darren, what happened? That grapefruit for breakfast. Oh, that hurt me so bad there and that honestly and especially when her and lily go out later that became a game of like oh there's only one food order is this eating disorder or is this a hallucination where only one of them is actually there to eat yes but uh no and what you're saying about i mean that's like nina's um childishness or like her infantile uh, i mean it's such a huge colossal part of the movie and I don't know, let me, maybe, I might be totally off base, let me know, I think, but I think if this movie can have a positive uh, reading, it's that while we're seeing this mental breakdown she's going through, the positive side seems to be that this is also her process of breaking through this extended arrested development we find her in at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, although it's, it's very toxic. Oh, super toxic. Yeah, I mean, like, there's, there's breaking free, and then there is, you know, uh, struggling desperately um, in an environment where that is just so incredibly toxic that it you you break yourself when you're trying to break out of it. Um, And I think that's, that's part of this story is the big part of this story for for Nina. Um, I also have never seen such a pink movie that is just so upsetting. Like there's so much pink in this movie, like pastel pink and everything feels like just like with the music and just the, the I think it's the lighting as well and the sound uh, design. There's a graininess to yeah, the film, even in like 2011 and I think, or no, yeah. 2010, like there was still like, I, I don't know, it must have been intentional, but they're just, it, the. It just made like the whole film feel this extra level of grunge to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think a lot of that is emphasized in these early scenes of like, you can see already the damage that like this, that dancing is doing to her body. She's, you know, spends a lot of time sort of massaging her legs and popping her toes and uh, fixing up her shoes and everything. They, they go through a lot of like real processy stuff at the beginning there. Um, before she you know takes the train into the ballet and we meet the rest of of the group there's uh beth winona writer's character who is sort of the prima ballerina who's on her way out um the the girls in the locker room are already sort of uh talking about her behind her back and we also get the introduction of uh lily who's played by mila kunis who uh start, starts off by showing up late she is the uh, you know, cool girl, fresh in from San Francisco, who is uh, in in sort of very simple ways from the very beginning, sort of uh, the opposite of of uh, Nina, who is uh, super uptight and controlled, and and uh, spends a lot of a lot of time trying to be specifically perfect. There's definitely that technician versus performer dynamic the you know nina's always told that her movements are perfect but she can't feel she's not, never loses herself in the dancing well 
Uh, Lily is someone who's less precise, but has more passion before in the puts more passion in the dance. I also just realized with, you know, Nina's whole themes of like, you know, the child like sexual awakening uh, through competition. It made me realize that I think this might be a toxic horror version of Yuri on Ice. <laughs> That's a take. I like it. That is indeed a take. Okay. I mean, all right. Okay. Sure. Sorry, these pieces are f- kind of it was horrifying instead of empowering. So well, there's <laughs> there's some things I wanted to say about some tropes later about that, but um if you ever if you have a any question about the roles of characters in this movie in the uh, credits they actually the characters have roles that are uh named in the credits so uh lily is credited as or, uh, or i should say um mila kunis mila kunis is credited as lily slash the black swan so we already have uh some archetypes that you know that are sort of uh, that are not just subtext that are text. So, uh, how how does everybody feel about uh, the the characters uh, and the, the performances of both uh, Mila Kunis as Lily and Winona Ryder as Beth? I love them. <laughs> it's great. My favorite thing about this was that they were three women who kind of look alike. I think yeah. that was totally on purpose. But um, Winona Ryder can do no wrong. No, my, as my own personal personal sexual awakening went on a writer. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it's interesting because like Lily is so inherently likable in this movie, even as we're supposed to kind of see her as somebody who's like, I don't know, a, a source of friction, a, somebody to compete against at the same time. It's like, oh no, she's also a person who gives Nina an out from the very frigid and like closed lifestyle she leads because of her mother um which is weird because I even came out of this movie thinking like I don't see this person as a bad guy I don't even see this person as like an antagonist even through most of it even at the point where like she's someone who took the role away from her like when she wakes up late on the first day of the show and she's like Mila's her second like took the role she again she was out she was hours late yeah yeah Yeah, she showed up on time but even then like she was like I'm sorry I was here and you weren't here like whatever and even even all the like the most villainous things we see Lily do again we're in the spoiler section all turn out to be uh hallucination exactly I mean, she's not perfect. She doesn't. She doesn't um, foil all of the the repression completely. You know, she she still has some toxic elements to her, but it's not it's not in any way um, antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel you know it's it's just part of her coping mechanism with the lifestyle, um, and it's just part of her personality. So it doesn't it doesn't feel like she's trying to perpetuate the toxic behavior in fact she is one of the only people that seems to uh reach out to nina and offer support even though sometimes it is um inelegant um but uh you know she's she's definitely trying to make friends but to nina lily represents something that nina isn't and so therefore it 
is um it, it, i don't know if evil is the word but you know she is she's uh an antagonist foil. Yeah, yeah she's, she's foil, not, yeah. not so much an antagonist as a foil i think yeah in terms of the character of beth nona Ryder's character uh, i watched this with my partner and she had such a I was so interested by like her taking her reading. Talked about how the Beth made her really, really uncomfortable, especially watching this in 2010, uh, because of kind of she said because of like kind of the meta narrative of Winona Ryder playing someone had her career like taken from her by this abusive system, and just and the mirroring of reality added a to her added this whole other level of uncomfortability that I wonder if has been a little lost now that she's Winona Ryder star of Stranger Things biggest streaming hit of the decade yeah I'm glad that I wasn't the only one that that kind of felt that sort of there was sort of the meta meta situation I don't know if it was totally intentional that uh, you have this sort of Natalie Portman Winona Ryder situation but um I, I think that if that was considered at all I think it was an interesting choice um, you know, and again, this is this is in the sort of lull between, you know, young Winona Ryder and then Stranger Things Winona Ryder. Um, her character, I think, is very important um, in the story as sort of the uh, the end result of the kind of grooming that uh, Nina is subjected to. You know, what happens when somebody is just chewed up completely by that system? And, uh, you know, she's, she is very tragic. Um, and it's really sad too, because Nina um, starts by looking up to her and then realizes the, the, the end result of her journey is being as, as um, publicly humiliated or just completely eaten uh, as Beth was. So um, I think that's an important heart, thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of, Again, this movie has so many just little moments of horror that I appreciate so much. And it's when Tomas is talking about, he says, I think the line is something about how Beth's like instability is what made her such a good dancer. And <laughs> Nina has this moment of just being like, oh, well, then that's what I should do to be a better dancer. Yeah, it's that whole trope of um, and, and the toxic ideal of the tortured artist. You know that you have to be crazy in order to be a, a the the best artist or the you know the most innovative or whatever. No, no tortured artists around here. Um, now, I, I I do want to say like uh, we talked a little bit about Mila Kunis's performance here, and I, I do I really love it because I feel like it hits on the same thing as like one of my favorite performances. It's been a while since we talked about Buffy on here, but. Um, she really feels like Eliza Dushku um, and specifically like Eliza Dushku's portrayal of Faith Lahane, her character in Buffy, who is like, even when she is a bad guy, she is so likable. Like she's just kinetic and even, you know, she can be mean, but she is also like supportive and friendly in a physical way that like, you know, she's going to be, she's the, she's the friend that's going to kick somebody's ass, um, you know, if they mess with you. That that feels very much like what Mila Kunis is is giving off in this. She's not just friendly. She, I mean, she's not friendly in a lot of cases, but that she is like somebody who uh, who who wants to you know have your back. She wants to you know 
look out for you uh is is undeniably like cool she's genuine yeah in a way that nina will never be like (laughs) nina can be great but she is never going to be cool can we talk about the mom and her wall of self-portraits i mean yeah that's that's a big suitcase to unpack right there um i don't think we we see that quite yet just all the ballerinas and the portraits i mean that's that is whew. that freaked me out that had for me an extra level of fear because when they all started screaming that was the exact oh, yeah. moment my cat decided like oh i want to be a runaround boy and just like <laughs> leaped directly at me like from behind. <laughs> oh no well when you first see them the one of the portraits moves slightly like the eyes in it move slightly. And that's another thing. This movie has a lot of really, really subtle stuff going on, which I think is masterful. Another crew may have leaned either so far to the left or right of this hallucinatory experience that Nina was going through. But I felt like the subtlety was really, really nice. And, you know, where they decided to go hard with the, the imagery and where they didn't, it was just like perfect. There's that scene at the beginning where she's like in the subway and she like sees someone like a car over doing the exact same thing that she's doing. And there's something so unsettling about that. Cause like, even, I don't know, I'm thinking about like all the times I'm on a zoom call and I accidentally like lift my hand at the same time as someone. And I'm immediately just like, Oh my God, please don't do that. (laughs) Like it's, it's stuff like that. And then I do think it makes the, when you get into the really kind of more graphic horror scenes, like, you know, her pulling the cuticle out, or I guess her turning into an actual swan, like that stuff hits so much harder because you're, you've got that buildup where it's just, you're uncomfortable the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. The, the cuticle scene was way, gave me like, squicked me out way more than the transforming into a oh, yeah. person. I was like, I know, uh, like I could feel it happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean because you have the transformation the sort of bird transformation which is fanciful you know and it's it's really cool but it's not as horrifying as like when you're peeling your skin off and you're like Ugh, like it's a whole like it's you're opening a package um yeah sorry <laughs> but uh you know but then and then it's not happening or you know but the, the again um the where they go hard with it with that um imagery is really effective um yeah and and i think they they mix it up enough that like when it happens you're almost never like expecting it to be that moment at least you know the the first time something happens i kept having moments of like oh shit does does that lady have natalie portman's face (laughs) yeah one thing that we didn't mention in the uh, trigger warnings earlier was there is a very stroby scene where they're in a nightclub and there is editing where you see like random shit like the moon and they're in Natalie Portman's room and stuff in between the cuts of like all the strobing. Um, so, I mean, that's a cool effect, but if you're not, if you're affected by strobing, be warned. Um you know, when people are dancing in this in this movie, not ballet. I have some things I I some questions I want to posit about ballet dancers raving, but we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the uh, basically at this point is where Vincent Cassell's Tomas shows up. Uh, he announces they're doing Swan Lake, but they want to do it. He wants to do it a little bit differently. He wants you know the per- one person to play the white Swan and the black Swan, which are both these incredibly different and demanding roles. Um, you know, Nina wants to do 
wants the part and he she nails the part of the uh, the white swan and Tomas is, is immediately sort of aggressively like oh well I knew you would do that you're technically very good but you're not sexy enough to be the black swan you're not self-possessed and seductive um which like boy just just shitty from like moment one um, yeah how about just the dickish way like before he even starts with the black swan he has them all dancing and then he taps a bunch of them on the shoulder and he yeah. said everyone i didn't tap gets to move on to the next round <laughs> like all the ones like all the ones he tapped just had the smuggest looks on their faces then just devastated like, yeah he is he is like monstrous the second he shows up like you know the way that he like lords it over this room of dancers and everybody is like oh shit he's here you know and he's like kind of a big deal you know and then like he just oozes uh, he oozes <laughs> he, i mean he, a lot of things he, he is in mood. love with his power to lord himself over his dancers who he has at each other's throats and kind of encouraging their paranoia. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a groomer. And, you know, even before he starts grooming on camera, he is easily recognizable as um, the one of the worst kinds of predators that you find in any sort of creative circle or, you know, any during anywhere <laughs> during that whole ending, like the final scene. The only part of it that made me truly just like gasp and recoil is when he calls her little princess. <laughs> yeah, because he, he calls Beth a little princess throughout. And at some point, Lily makes a joke about, uh, oh, it's so it's so gross. And uh, Nina's like, oh, I think it's sweet. And it's immediately like, I've got Nina, I feel. Like. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she is, uh, she's doing the black swan part and she's, for the most part, at least technically pulling it off when Lily sort of walks in late and interrupts her in the middle of the dance um, and, you know, throws her off. She, she falls and is, is, is you know, proving to uh, Toma that she, she can't do it. Um, and on her, on her way home, you know, from, from this uh, dance recital, uh, she, or rehearsal, she is, is noticing again, like this weird mirroring. She sees a girl sort of like, on the other side of, you know, this, uh, it's not even a subway platform, it's outside the subway, who is also, like, looking at and closing her phone at the same time she is, and, and moving, you know, opposite directions of her. Um, incredibly creepy. Um, yeah. And she is, she's really, like, she goes home and really is, like, pushing herself to uh, to do all these, these moves and to keep practicing. She ends up splitting her toenail, which is, like, again, another thing that is not technically part of the horror of this movie that is incredibly hard to look at yeah they they again that they don't wince or well we wince they are unflinching in in the depiction that's the to me the existential horror is just like look how much she's willing to hurt herself for this like this is real like this is what dancers are doing every day yeah, the, the horror of reality, right, is what makes so much of this so effective because, yeah, it's like, oh, ballet dancers totally have feet like that when they do point because they've worked so incredibly hard to get there and they've had, uh, yeah, I can't even think about it. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, too, is that, um, and I, it's part of the the effectiveness of this story because you have all of these crazy, all this imagery that is kind of, 
metaphysical and stuff like that and you know hallucinatory and then you have just real things that you know are real you know that aren't exaggerated um not just the ballet uh the the effects of ballet dancing on the body but the the effects of stress on the body um and we also see in this scene where uh nina messes up her toe uh we see her mother um sort of babying her and and how kind of infantile their relationship is where you have and she calls her mom mommy and and all this kind of stuff nothing against that but it's just the way that they kind of speak to each other and they have a particular code of uh um a a manner of speaking with each other um it's pretty uncomfortable even before you get to the cake scene and realize oh this is completely toxic yeah and like, did I, like, I feel like when I was watching it, like the opening scene, I was like, okay, like this is, that was like the first scene, that cake scene really, I think was, was one of the first scenes where I was like, oh, like something is really wrong here. And I don't know if I was supposed to pick up on something earlier and I got distracted, but ugh, really well, this, this particularly with the mom is so like, for people who like, who have witnessed abusive relationships, like this is so clearly like a a thing of this like oh well I got you this thing and you don't appreciate it so I'm gonna throw a fit about it and make you feel bad about it um yeah and it, it's, it's so manipulative it's, and it's the horror of reality coming through again just knowing that like god yeah that's exactly how yeah. abusive like parent child relationships and narcissistic parents work and again, it like it does that slow build so well. Like, so you hit that point, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Oh my god!" And that's really kind of the start of a lot of shit to follow. Right? Yeah, it's, it's like all the calling her mommy, the bedroom, like all the infantile stuff. Like, is such a red flag that by the time you get to that, the cake scene, it's everything clicking in place, and you're like, "Oh, yep, that puts everything into the proper context." Yeah, that's when the film gets decisive about what their relationship really is. Yeah, and then speaking of uh, scenes that are horribly decisive about what relationships are, uh, <laughs> that next, that ne- the first scene of that next day, she she goes back in and she's determined to convince uh, Toma that she's she's good for this part. And Toma is, you know, telling her that, you know, oh, he's already chosen Vanessa. And, you know, it's she just doesn't have the, whatever for it and she she wants to get the part and to illustrate his point he aggressively kisses her and apparently she bites him and that's just what changes his mind is uh that when when he kisses when he aggressively kisses her she bites him and yeah and she you know then storms off confident that she's lost this part and just congratulates vanessa who uh, immediately is pissed because uh, it turns out that Tomas has actually given her the part. She runs off to the bathroom to call her mom and she emerges from the stall uh, excited. The, uh, somebody has written whore on the mirror. The calling her mom scene is supposed to be a happy scene. It does not read at all. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's supposed to be a happy moment for her, but you never really get a sense that she's happy. She's just emotional, you know? Well, I wonder how much of it is that like we're as as the audience, we aren't happy for her because we just witnessed how she had to get that part and what the and what Tama did to her to 
awaken whatever you know like ugh, ugh. but it's it is very effective because she you see this like roller coaster of emotions in her mm-hmm. as she's like trying to pr- process all this shit that just happened in the last like 10 minutes or some shit like you know or, or however long of her day just within the day of work essentially is you know she gets assaulted um she gets rejected she uh misreads or, or she she makes an assumption pisses off her coworker, then you know gets what she wants and so um there and uh i think there's also a, a bit here where she sees winona Ryder like freak out um and and leave her uh her uh, make or her green room or whatever um so there's a lot happening and um you know as, as we as the audience again this movie is so so effectively myopic for for nina's perspective or excuse me nina's perspective sorry this isn't um dracula um that's a different renona writer um thank you um anyway I, I had to go back i'm like oh yeah she was in dracula yeah she was like the main character she was i just remember all of gary oldman's dope costumes and keanu's british accent i was gonna say keanu's uh, (laughs) keanu's accent i love him i love him too i watched uh my one of my favorite parts of bill and ted three is when he does a british accent again and it's like (laughs) oh good to know it has not improved since dracula spoilers oh my god i haven't seen that yet Oh, I could do a whole think piece on Cobra Kai and Bill and Ted Three, the new the new narrative of Gen X. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if we need it, but we don't. I'm sure there are hundreds, especially of from them a already. shitty millennial. Um, Apparently, I'm a geriatric millennial. Same. I say shitty millennial as if society has any concept of a good millennial. So I'm just millennial. I'm I'm Generation Y, and that's where I'm going to stand forever. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, okay, so generation let's... discourse. I apologize. <laughs> Don't ever... uh, so let's talk about these next couple of bits because we get the bit with mom painting herself over and over, painting you know ballerinas all over the walls in a way that is strongly suggestive of uh, having issues. <laughs> like it, it's not that she has a lot of different paintings of ballerinas it's that she has a lot of the same painting that she has done a whole bunch of different ways of herself as a ballerina um which we then immediately get contrasted with nina has this this thing where she keeps scratching her back without realizing it and she keeps scratching it raw to the point of of bleeding um which you know is is i think we're, we're strongly suggested is is like an an ocd thing um a, disorder of some sort um and those those two things i think are are placed so closely it's hard to not associate them and um you know sort of of, of see this as a a pitch for at least part of the the issues nina's dealing with is, is being uh genetic barbara hershey absent-mindedly talking to nina while staring at herself in a mirror painting a painting of herself alongside an entire wall of paintings of herself. Fucking goosebumps. Like literally don't need, don't need any hallucinations or crazy or mental breakdowns there to just make that just so fucking creepy. 
Like if so, you're doing a Resident Evil movie and you walk in and that's the room, you just be like, ah, oh, fuck it. I don't need the zombies. This is worse. <laughs> Get, I would prefer the zombies than the Barbara Hershey painting herself. This is so much worse. This movie could be a horror movie without any of the, the extra imagery, you know, without any of the, the hallucinations and any of that. Like it, it, it doesn't need that to be horrible. I still think it's, it's great for those images. But um, uh, as somebody who has uh, been diagnosed with that form of OCD with the scratching and the picking, um, it was kind of a revelation to see it depicted in this movie um from this character who is under all this stress because i rarely ever see that as something that is a focal point of symptoms of stress in films um and uh, the the imagery of that not just the, the rash and the uh, the the picking you know the what they call the um the, the, she develops what's looks like chicken skin which is very similar to a, um, a very common skin uh, condition called keratosis polaris, which is the bane of people who, are, who suffer from OCD because it becomes a lot more um, compulsive to pick at it. Um, not to say that you know, people without polaris don't have that same problem, but I mean, when you have like these particular kind of bumps on the skin, which are aggravated by bad sleep habits by by stress and things like that um it i i felt almost validated by that being part of her her struggle in this movie very specifically because i know there's a lot of people out there with um you know various compulsions about skin you know uh, appealing or things like that and it is a really serious problem people get um scars which is extra terrible when you're in an industry that's all about beauty standards um and that comes up later too so this is you know this begins as something that is subtle much like a lot of the other problems in this movie that um i should say issues in the movie that that nina deals with and then becomes aggravated but still manages to stay thematic within like the experience of that um so but i'll get to that later when we start and she starts pulling feathers out of her <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's interesting to look at the elements of this movie as the, you know, there are elements of, of like real world uh, chronic mental illness that, uh, you know, her and her mom deal with here at the beginning. And there is the straight up psychosis of, of later in the movie where she's having, you know, visual hallucinations and uh, audio hallucinations and things like that. Um, uh, Elizabeth, Megan, what did you guys think of like the the depiction in these early scenes of like the you know OCD and things like that? Do you want to go, Megan? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought they were really interesting, also from a perspective of a person who has OCD. Um, I don't have the same ticks, I guess. The same like. Uh, compulsions I guess is the word that I'm looking for but yeah I I found myself really like understanding and kind of really vibing with her for lack of a better word I really understood the kinds of anxiety she was having the kinds that are kind of not specified as being anxieties 
which is what OCD is in its in its like roughest form is like you don't necessarily unless you're a person with compulsive thoughts which is me but you don't always know that what's happening is anxiety because you're dealing with it you're relieving it by doing things either to yourself or to your surroundings to make yourself feel better um so I thought it was a really interesting way of doing dealing with that I I feel a little I don't know part of me is like we're not we don't I don't know I think more people are probably undiagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder oh yeah yeah so like there was like a weirdness of like this person is not as crazy and I know you can't see air quotes in a podcast, but <laughs> as, um, as this movie maybe wants to make her out to be, this is just a way of coping with anxiety that makes perfect sense to my brain, particularly because I have the same kind of brain. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a little bit of sensationalism to it that didn't work for me. But also at the same time, I was like, this is a person who is me. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It absolutely does. Cause I think that, that that's also, it's a good take when you talk about um, these symptoms being sensationalized and being depicted as super debilitating. Um, and, and for me, her, her OCD was less debilitating as it was vilified by the beauty standards that she had to deal with. Um, you know, in, in terms of like the, and also the, the skin picking, you know, can be a very, very uh, difficult habit to deal with. But um, I think uh, in this movie, you know, I think that just from the way that I read it, uh, it was something that was made a big deal out of by her mom, which was more of a symptom of her uh, toxic relationship with her mom and with her, uh, her job. Um and the, the the beauty standards that she had to put up with with the with the job yeah there's like there's kind of an interesting like take on self-harm here too because like yeah. of course we don't really know whether or not she was doing this to herself for the most for most of the movie because i don't know so much of it is like is this a hallucination yeah. um it, yeah like that it's really hard like especially when she's dancing and you can tell like it's you know part of it's feathers part of it's not like even when there's and then there's like even regardless of makeup, it's not there. So like it's the the degree of it is one of the hardest things to pinpoint what's real and what. Yeah, it's so weird too to think like, yeah, it it becomes a problem because other people view it as a problem. You know, her mom thinks it's a problem. It's that ugly. Was so, that was so upsetting when the mother saw and just like forced her like into like the shower and just was just scolding her and lecturing her so much as you know i've certainly not never been diagnosed with ocd or anything like that but you know i've had bad habits that can be really hard to break and i know that no amount of scolding and making me feel bad about the bad habits is going to help me stop doing it absolutely and like with compulsions like with somebody who's ocd and of course she's not like diagnosed in this movie at any point but yeah you you know it's it's easy to read that way it's hard to imagine that somebody would be like oh you're coping with stress this way let me make this more traumatizing for you (laughs) 
by holding you down and taking away a method of your own personal like anxiety relievers by like forcing you to like trim your nails and like it's not great it's just yeah <laughs> it's weird it's 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 a weird and of course her mom is totally toxic so for someone who for a mom who wants this to be like a perfect daughter it's like of course she doesn't want to acknowledge mental illness in her especially if the mental illness is, is exacerbated by her own behavior toward her yeah um speaking of which we now have the cake scene yeah but where... we've talked about it a bit already she you know brings nina a cake to uh celebrate and you know nina is is not willing to eat any of the cake she doesn't um you know she's she's trying to watch her weight she's a dancer she's got all of these sorts of reasons um you know whether <laughs> however we feel about them uh the mom immediately jumps from like all right well you're not gonna eat it i'm just gonna throw it away like you know she's just immediately trying to control nina um i mean it's it's so bananas because like the mom was a dancer she knows her daughter's a dancer she knows how da- her, how hard her daughter works you know and then you're like here you, i know you, it's been a really big day and you're a dancer you're trying to but here have all this butter like yeah. that was a gorgeous cake too and you know, she just frame it just <laughs> fucking resin coat it and like <laughs> you don't need to eat it yeah i think my thought with there was that this is a person who didn't succeed at her goals for a number of reasons, some of which were beyond her control. Like she got pregnant, but um, it feels like she's trying to sabotage her a little Mm -hmm. bit. Like, like the, the, the subtext, it's barely subtext of the fact that her daughter has become a more successful ballerina and than she has and the fact that that fucks her up is it's like of course she bought her a cake because in a small way that's gonna like fuck up her chances of actually successfully dancing this part the lead part in in probably the most famous ballerina the most famous ballet of all time like yeah there's that horribly toxic mix where she nina is both an extension of herself and also a rival so she both yeah. desperately needs Nina to succeed, yet can't stand to succeed. Yeah. And it's also a big part of abuse, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, controlling a situation so far that you would know that, you know, you're, you're, um, you fuck things up kind of like uh, Munchausen's by proxy. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the, again, the real world horror that this is two generations sexually abused by dance like directors. Oh my God. Oh. Yeah. Oh my God. Imagine if it was Toma. Oh no. I think it was. That's horrifying. That's so much more horrifying. Yeah. Cause she's specifically. That's, I feel like that's too horrifying for me to go down that rabbit hole just for, just for any, not that I should be trying to find anything good, like pure or heartwarming or affirming in Black Swan. It's <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that breaks you about Black Swan. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm gonna say the the incest is the like the theoretical incest is the straw that breaks the horribly like nightmare. Oh, that he was her dad. Ooh, I didn't think about that actually. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Exactly, not text in the exactly. Movie. I don't like it. Yeah, that is not. Text don't in like the film. it. <laughs> I 
yeah, that is definitely a dark void that you do not want to lock eyes with. Um, I think anyway, the implication is that it, I, it, it I will say no, thank you. Somebody like Tomas. Yeah. Yes. Like I, I prefer that as otherwise I will say no, thank you, Mr. Abyss. I will not stare into you today. <laughs> That's always kind of. Well, yeah. So this, this uh, next day we, uh, you know, we, Nina is, is training hard and really trying to, to do this part. And Tomas is already uh, giving her a lot of shit about how she is not doing it sexy enough. She is not loose enough or fluid enough. Um, and that, you know, he, she needs to find that little bite. Um, you know, makes it clear that the, uh, that him, that her reaction to him, uh, sexually abusing her is what made him give her the part. Um, which he mentions in public. Now he doesn't mention the context in public, but you know, this motherfucker is so monstrous that he plays around with revealing their illicit relationship or their, the, the, you know, his assault essentially in public in front of all of the other directors and and dancers yeah um and and we also see uh nina watching lily who is uh you know who is again always wearing black in this movie uh her her bit is not perfect but she's fluid and loose tomas is saying you know that's what that is what uh nina needs um we get this uh announcement party where they're announcing her as the the lead in black swan um and this is where we also learn that beth is being retired at the end of the season um and nita's being prepped to take her spot um and this is where like there's uh blood on her fingernails and you know she's she's biting at her fingernails and she goes to wash her hands and uh peels just a long chunk of skin off of her her finger uh in just the most horrifying manner um and then turn you know looks up and turns back to see that her her finger is is not actually uh missing a large chunk of skin which is the first uh, one of the first of of many visual hallucinations she's going to have in here um and really a horrifying one um and uh, this is also, you know, where she she first meets, really gets to meet Lily, who is uh, knocking to come into the bathroom and um, comes in and uh, is is talking to her and trying to hang out with her while in the bathroom. Nina's clearly not having it. Uh, meanwhile, Lena uh, or Lily is taking off her panties and putting them in her purse in the bathroom. Um, Which I'm gonna say, don't do around your coworkers. Yeah, just don't do it. Just in general, like, yeah. Yeah, th- this is also the first time we get a, a clear look at Lily's back tattoos, which are uh, large black wings, as if they're we just really needed to drive they're that. They're not, way. though. They're flowers. They start out as flowers. Yes, because we do get them transforming and hallucinating during, uh, hallu- during hallucination sex. Yeah, during the Leslie wet dream. During the yeah, we'll throw this in the trailer. That'll get taken. Yeah, but yeah, they like they they're they're originally like a pair. They were very wing like in sort of broad strokes, but they're they're a couple of flowers that become wings, and they do change a lot. That's another one of those subtle it's effects so- in the film that that these the actual tattoo, what kind of flowers they are, is constantly changing. It's some real subtext is for cowards energy. I mean, like I said, this movie in the credits 
identifies the characters as roles. <laughs> so um, one thing we did not talk about uh, that happened earlier is that when um, Beth was freaking out when uh, they were back at the dance studio or at the theater uh, practicing and Beth was freaking out and then Nina has gone in. This is before the gala, before all that, before the cake, before the announcement. Nita went in and stole a bunch of Beth's stuff. Almost like this weird like fetishization of these these small objects, a pack of cigarettes, a uh stick of li- the, the the lipstick, the um nail earrings. File. Nail file nail file is very important. <laughs> it, um, it will be. Yeah. Um but she's just kind of taken this these random objects from uh Nina's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, dressing room. Dresser, vanity, yeah. Um, and uh, from a green room. And she's just been walking around with these. And now we're, we're back at the gala and we're finally talking to Beth um, after this, this encounter with Lily who sits up on the, on the sink and is like, keep me company, hang out with me, Nina. And, you know, to Nina, it feels suge- suggestive. And, you know, I'm sure Lily is just like, yeah, it's one of the girls, let's hang out. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, and Nina's looking at this really creepy angel statue that has like weird makeup. It's kind of got makeup like Mads Mikkelsen and Dr. Strange. Um, and it has like wing arms and then Beth shows up. She is drunk. She does really good drunk. I mean, she's upset, but she sounds, oh my God, she's very drunk. Yeah. Uh, she, she definitely accosts Nina and asks what she had to do to get the part if she's sleeping with Tomas, basically accuses her of sleeping with Tomas. Uh, Tomas dismisses and chases Beth off basically, um, and you know, while he's doing that, Nina sort of uh, you know, starts starts to wander out. Tomas invites Nina back to his place for some drinks, um, which I I hate the way Tomas just constantly acts like he's completely untouchable, and I hate that the movie offers no evidence that he's wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and this is uh, the scene back at his apartment is also where he gives Nina the important homework assignment of going home and touching herself um you know that'll help her get in touch with the part if she just she just goes home and uh masturbates his research a little bit um boy it's can i just can i just say this next scene elizabeth's gonna say it yeah (laughs) i was i know we're gonna talk in depth about how awful (laughs) that scene is but i'm so frustrated that that Master- masturbation for women is like positioned in such a weird way in this movie yeah. because i yeah. do think that all women should be masturbating this is maybe not the forum for this but i'm gonna just go for it no please no, for, by all means like women should also know what they like what it what feels good and he's not wrong about like the fact that she should explore that part of her sexuality as a person who has clearly never explored any part of her sexuality but the position he's in to tell her that is the wrong and makes it fucked up and makes it abusive and makes it grooming. And that's so frustrating for me because that turns like a scene in which a woman like discovers her sexuality, something dirty. And also, of course, has the added 
benefit of her mom literally being in the room while she's doing it which she is like have the literal space nightmares yes. nightmares on nightmares on nightmares yes you get like you get the 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 like the grooming abuse on one side and then on the other you get her mom turning her back into an infant because her mom is sleeping in the room with her like you know yeah, because so. of the scratching the back her mom has decided to yeah. just sleep in the room with her her room does not have a lock right by the way there's yeah. no lock on the door like um, at 28 years old that was the first time she thought how can i barricade this door so my mother can't get in and i can have some privacy that's wild yeah, yeah. like it's um and that's like the tragedy is that she breaking is that she's breaking through this again this arrested development but has only the most toxic people around her and only the most destructive ways of trying to do it like if she's getting like she's being told to do this by someone with a massive power imbalance over her and yeah. then also doing it being told to do it for the wrong reasons not yeah. to better herself to get more in touch with herself and her desires and become a healthy fulfilled adult but out of uh, trying to harass her into being a better dancer yeah and that's the thing I mean, that's that is what happens a lot with grooming is that sexuality is the is made especially with young people being groomed by older people um and you know in in, in professional environments or even like non-professional it's still um the taking control of somebody's sexuality away from them is such a horrible and insidious part of that um and you know and i i read that as as part of just the horror of it um you know it it definitely vilified the experience of um self-pleasure for her um you know and it's hard for me because of what i understand now it's hard for me to look at the movie and seeing it vilifying masturbation in general but um, just because I know everything in this movie that happens to, uh, that, that Nina's trying to go through, like I, I can see her um, struggling for something greater and that, you know, it, that it is there, but it, she never reaches it because of these people. So, you know, I don't think that that's a, a moral judgment on what she's trying to do, but just where she, um, she is just tragically ends up because of how fucked up everything is around her and a result of um that as as ben said the arrested development of of her um just general adult maturity sense of privacy sense of identity sexuality etc um i i feel like there's an argument to be made that the the descent into madness of the second half of this movie uh is entirely owed to one character's inability to just masturbate without being interrupted <laughs> Like, you know, she, it's like, it happens more than once too. Yes. You know, uh, I mean, first it's her mom, then it's her uh, horrible hallucinations. Um, yeah. And it, it's just like, you know, even, even these things that, you know, she, she might be able to potentially, you know, have, have some amount of breakthrough and have, have something, I, I don't want to say like something nice for herself. That sounds like a weird way to phrase it, but like, you know, any anything that might be at all pleasurable for her is is like shut down by the people around yeah and she, apparently she's had um boyfriends 
and that and she's had sex so i can't imagine mm. how much that sucked the way those lines I, I are delivered so. is really i'm a I believe I the she's had a few boyfriends, but nothing serious. That sounded genuine. The claiming she's had sex sounded really like a like press X to doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Shit. Well, and and the line. There's a line there where uh where Tomas like, oh, so you're not a virgin. Well, there's nothing to be ashamed of, which is like. Well, is this the scene where he asks? the her dance partner if he would fuck her this oh is later my God. The, the she's not a virgin there's nothing like that was at, back at his place um and before the uh um the doing the homework scene and that fucking zoom that carry zoom that they do on the mom being there is just so like on point <laughs> so about that scene though where um since I guess it comes later, but some fun as much as much as anything in this movie is fun. Some fun trivia of that scene of Tomas sexually harassing her with the, her dance partner. Uh, that actor uh, was Natalie Portman's ballet coach for the movie, and they got married about a year after this film came out. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Fuck you, yeah. Tomas. So he act, so Natalie Portman, one of her acceptance speeches actually, I think, brought it up and said, yeah, he's a great actor because he totally wanted to fuck me. I'm just like that scene was crazy for me because I wanted to fuck her. You know, like who doesn't at any point in time want to fuck Natalie Portman, one of the most beautiful women in the world? Like, I'm so frustrated by that whole idea. And I realize that it's Tomas being an asshole, trying to cut her down and make her doubt herself and what she looks like and who she is. But also, it's one of the most hard-to-believe parts of that entire movie that anybody on this planet that is interested in women doesn't, like, sort of want to fuck Natalie. It's It's very frustrating for me. It's a more horror in reality because, you know, as he is like, oh, they actually fell in love and got married in real life. It is, to me, another way of just the insidious horror by reality of this is the lead actor. This is the main male dancer. And he is completely enabling Tomas's like, sexual harassment. Like, this was, this is theoretically the one person with enough power that if he so chose could just put a stop to it and could just say something and shut it down and instead he enables and continues the sexual harassment without question and protest and it's just a horrifying way that people like can enable each other yeah have fun you two yeah uh, it's yeah because it's so that's almost the next scene from where we were we learn in between those two things that uh Beth is in the hospital at some point uh, after they they saw her. She uh, apparently stepped out in front of a car um, and, you know, is is very injured and in the hospital will never dance again. Um, but yeah. And then, uh, yeah, there's this, this scene where, you know, he's like just haranguing her and harassing her about not being sexy enough and this not being fluid enough. And yeah, you know, ask, ask their co-star if, if he would fuck this girl, which is really just a lot. Uh, and he just decides to top all of this by dismissing this guy and then uh, casting himself as the the dance partner. Um, 
and immediately like forcibly kissing her, uh, telling her to open her mouth so he can, you know, stick his tongue in and grabbing her by the crotch. Um, yeah, like unquestionable sexual assault. It's not cool. Um, this is bad. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is, it's very upsetting. Yeah. Um, and then he says, Oh, that's me seducing you. You have to do the, the op, you have to do that to me. My skin crawled. Yeah. And there's something else that he says when he's describing her. He says that she's frigid. Now, what she has been dealing with her whole life, as as represented with her whole home life, is that she is innocent. And here you find a catch twenty two of uh, of standards of femininity, which is you're either innocent if you or if you decide not to engage sexually, you're either too innocent or too frigid. So um, if you're if you're innocent and people uh, sort of fetishize that, which is weird and gross, in a lot of cases. And when I'm saying a lot of cases, you know, people have, uh, you know. I mean, we talked about that in uh, Ginger Snaps. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, um, and then with um, the frigidity, you know, if you if you don't put out, then you're frigid. So, you know, she's, she's working against these, these standards that are, that oppose each other. You know, she's trying to be a dancer. Right. Um, and this is something I think is really real and is really a real horrible part of, um, the, uh, the, just any, any industry creative or any sort of industry where beauty standards are involved, um, which in a lot of cases are industries that shouldn't have beauty standards involved. Um, you know, artistic creative industries do have subjective stand, you know, but that's another thing that, you know, that's a, a different kind of puzzle, um, to sort of solve. But in this case, I think that's an, that's a really big, important part of her frustration is that she has these two forces. And now she is being told as professional feedback that she needs to break those, break out of those two forces that she's being um up that she's like forced up against right so you know she's she's been told her whole life to be innocent and pure you know to be this this um she's professional dancer she's you know needs to have a certain body type and and keep a certain level of um you know i guess girlishness enforced by her mom etc and then um but you know and also with this white swan character you know the white swan is supposed to be like chaste and virginal um but now you have to have both of those things but in this case she just like because of the toxic environment that she's in she cannot find that middle ground and all you know the way that she's forced she's forced to find it rather than discover it um and uh you know and and there's not a lot of um the recognition of those of of just that how much those two forces you know for starters um really takes its toll if that makes any sense yeah absolutely and i think you know after after this is where we like we we see her crying in the studio and lily comes in and and tries to uh be nice to her and makes sort of the misstep of you know she's she says something uh about him him pushing her uh too hard and him being kind of a jerk and of course nina snaps to defend him and then 
you know, Lily's like, oh, and somebody's hot for teacher. And then that really makes things worse again. I, I kind of yeah. feel for Lily in this scene because like she's trying, right? That's, I feel like that's the kind of scene where if this movie comes out five, six years later, that scene is totally dead. Like there's no way that scene is written the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this is where we get our, our second um, masturbation scene where she is she's trying to masturbate in the uh, the bathtub and slips down into the water and then hallucinates blood dropping in and her mother standing over her and you know she we see that she's been scratching her back again she gets up and like is, is cutting her nails in front of the mirror and there's one the- of the like best bits of acting from Natalie Portman in this scene which is like she has like the scissors and is cutting her nails and like is is crying and worried and like stop like looks up and just has a completely different character for a second where like she just like looks herself in the face and then turns the scissors and like cuts her finger and like it's just like a whole shift that like as you're watching it is incredibly unnerving um yeah enough for the oscar like right there honestly for me well, we also have the masturbation scene before the masturbation of her on her way back, just dealing with gross old subway perverts, which ugh, thanks, Darren, I guess. I guess the movie wasn't bleak enough. Thanks. I, I wasn't quite getting the tone. <laughs> thanks for just making sure I got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there's so many movies that just have have scenes that are just like, ah, oh, fucking New York. <laughs> like, this is really <laughs> one of those fucking New York scenes. Like, this is just, you know, shitty people on the subway. Um, yeah, it's it's rough. Um, yeah, we, and and I, we get I, the... hate, I hate to say it, but I, I feel terrible saying it, but there are parts of this movie that kind of remind me of Joker. Mostly just in how close it is to the character, how it never leaves the character's perspective. But just now that we're on, I'm thinking like, oh, and I guess horrible people on the subway did kind of play a role in both of their journey, their awful journeys. Yes, nobody nobody sings any musical numbers to Natalie Portman while, while beating her up. Um, I mean, I that would have made it so much worse if the old man was singing while masturbating. <laughs> I guess it depends on the song. If it would have made it better, no, I don't know. I don't know what song you could be singing to make it better. I, I demand to know what song would make that better, Ben. I just, I need to know. I'm gonna say this. I don't know which Savage Garden song, but I'm gonna say a Savage Garden song. <laughs> I mean, I apologize for that tangent. Art. Um, I it still would be you know assault but at least there would be like a, a performative element to it, which would be like, okay, it, it'd be better if this, if there was more, if there are more people, I don't know. There's a lot, there, there's not very much that will make it better. I, no, I do I think that him I, singing a song maybe takes it from, this is something I will go to my grave never talking about to this is something I'm definitely going to tell my friends about. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't, as is, I don't, I don't know why this scene exists in the movie other than just in case I wasn't feeling bad enough and I just feel worse. We really needed the sound effect of. I hated that yeah. sound effect. I hated that <laughs> so much. 
<laughs> even you, like even you, just imitating that sound. I got like <laughs> fucking Kill Bill soundtrack, like sirens. <laughs> like, oh, no. It's just so sorry. It's just such <laughs> gratuitous emotional cruelty. God, I do, I do genuinely think, and this is, you know, we were talking about their the the time this is made and the lack of of women higher up on the production side of this movie that I do think, you know, if perhaps if this movie were made today or if there were women higher up on this movie, they could say, hey, Darren, you don't need this. Like, it's pretty clear from the rest of the movie where we're going. This is not necessary. Like, and it's right after the scene with Tomas. Like, it's it's bad about, like, I, I, the movie gave me no time to comprehend anything in between. So it's just doubling down on this horrible feeling I'm feeling. I'm pretty sure that guy on the on the subway was one of the guys at the uh, event in <laughs> Requiem for the Dream or Requiem for a Dream. This is... I, <laughs> oh, no, Jeremy! Are we going to go... Wait, hold on. If I go back through Darren Aronofsky's entire filmography, am I going to find this masturbating old man in every film? Is this like the awful like thing that creates the shared Aronofsky verse? Jesus Christ. <laughs> the, the Darren Aaron verse. Um, I don't know where he would be in Pi. I'd have to find that. Pi is fine. He can be literally anywhere in Pi. That's just the kind of movie that is. You could pr- he's probably everywhere in Pi. You just can't tell because it's so fucking grainy. I, I'm just wondering, like... The fountain is going to be tough, but he'll find a way. <laughs> fountain is, is where where my stumbling block is there. Um, oof. Um, the idea of uniting a whole film universe with one masturbating old man is really... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of film universes started anyway. Uh, um... Isn't yeah, I got the view skewiverse. I mean, there's enough masturbating in that already. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so we, uh, Tomas uh tells Nina that uh Lily came to him and was uh saying that he needed to go easy on her, um, because you know she was uh she was having a hard time with it and sort of weaponizes that against her, um, and then she you know runs and yells at lily about it um and lily to uh to try and make up for this comes to uh comes to her house where her mom answers the door and like refuses to let nina talk to lily or like to interact with her at all and this is the point where uh nina has finally had enough and decides that uh she's gonna go out with lily um and they proceed to uh, get drunk, uh, take illegal drugs, and uh, hook up with Sebastian Stan and uh, his, his buddy. Um, was Sebastian like- Tom or Jerry? He was um, Jerry, but his yeah. real name was Andrew. Right. I'm Andrew. trying to think of a better night than going out doing drugs with Mila Kunis and hooking up with Sebastian Stan. Yeah, it's fucking it ten out of ten. To be honest, it's a great Saturday. <laughs> Well, I mean, Sebastian start with one of those if you've never done any of them and work your way up. So yeah, I, I mean, will like, say, step by step, as weird as the mother was acting, Lily, I did have the back of my head like, oh, I'm like six sixty five percent sure that there really was nobody there, 
and this is just like hallucination lily like oh she just shows up to apologize went through all this extra thing to get the address um so to me one of the big plot twists was later she was like oh yeah no we totally went out and had drinks it was a fun time <laughs> like, oh you were there okay gotta go yeah. adjust the old mental timeline yeah because i think uh at, at a point in this lily is having a really bad trip uh is seeing like bumps emerging out of her skin in the bathroom and uh seems to make the mental decision that she is done and needs to go home and oh, walks sure. out of the club with nobody else and lily just happens to like stick her head out of the door at the last minute and is like oh hey where are you going i'll go with you and jumps in the cab with her which i think lily sticking her head out of the door is solidly where we have that break with reality yeah, um, yeah. that's where i think i agree I, that's where i think the break is okay then they proceed to because nobody acknowledges lily from that point on like both tom and andrew are talking with both of them they're interacting with both of them. She is, you know, uh, giving people drugs. And then, like, they get in the cab. The cabbie doesn't say anything to either of them. Uh, they <laughs> variously, they start to hold hands. And Lily sticks her hand down Nina's pants. And Nina eases it out. Uh, but then, like, they go in the house. And the mom is yelling at Nina. And there's this weird thing where, like, Nina is saying the same things that Lily is mouthing on the other side of the room. And the mom never acknowledges that Lily is there. Um, yeah. Other than that she's, really... just, she's just yelling at her for being out partying late at night. And uh, then, you know, Nina and Lily go into the bedroom and the mom is still yelling at her, but doesn't say anything about Lily being there. So there's a really cool bit. Um, Cause there's a couple things I want to address in this whole sequence. Uh, there's a cool bit with the where where Nina and Lily kind of split in reflection. Yes, um, I noticed that one. I love that bit. Yeah, there's a lot of cool use of mirrors and reflection in this movie. That's again very subtle, but also very effective. Um, okay, man that loves mirrors. Really, yeah, whole really oh boy. Um, so Tom and Jerry, uh, or Andrew, I can't remember. Is Andrew the guy that's super drunk and tells Nina that she's beautiful and just can't and he never heard of Swan Lake? Yes so that's sebastian so okay so sebastian stan has some good some some actual lines in this movie of being yeah, just, he's in it more than other guy um, yeah because he is totally blotto and he's like what yeah he, he had that uh hot tub time machine pedigree that got him yeah. bumped up to uh bar guy number one <laughs> and true um and then they go dancing um and we get all the crazy strobes um we see the moon and it's interesting because we have when um the mom assaults nina when she comes back home nina's saying well i've been to the moon and back um and so and i and i guess the moon has something to do with one like i i i only i've seen it like maybe once or twice i don't i don't know unless it's like the swan princess movie because the moon does play a part in that animated movie but i doubt <laughs> that those are correlated I mean, I'm sure they're all like, you know, like a lot of myths in the uh, the great archetypes of um, mythology like are, are connected. But I don't know if the Swan Lake movie has a very close correlation to the Swan Lake <laughs> or the Swan Princess. I don't know. Um, also, I ballerinas. 
Huh? I, I assume it's one to one. Yeah. A lot of a lot of sparkles. Um, this is like Anastasia's is a like historical recreation. Listen, I thought it was for a long time. <laughs> Our talk the bat, ha, you know, we as well. I don't know about we Russian as. <laughs> um, oh shit! I voted myself. I'm a spy. No, I'm not actually. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Mother Russia owes much to Bartok the Bat. Um, anyway, uh, I would love to go to a rave with ballerinas, ballerinos, any sort of ballet dancer. I would be very interested to see their take on rave dancing. Like spinning would be wild. Yeah, I just assume it's like that scene in Titanic, right, where she's doing, she's dancing on point and also- as everybody else is jigging. Yo, I would also watch the version of Titanic where instead of like the Irish band playing the violin, Jack and Rose just go to like a below deck rave. Yeah. <laughs> it's all that Molly. Yeah. That's a that's a very different version of Titanic where act three happens with Rose and Jack tripping the entire time. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to escape a capsizing giant boat while while tripping on balls? And just just yeah. You know, Tripping on balls? Tripping on balls. That's what I said. <laughs> tripping on balls. Well, tripping balls. That's an episode well, when the right deck there. moves like that, those balls start rolling. So <laughs> it's really Whoa. hard to keep your footing. The ship is sinking, but like this band is playing right now. What? Are these guys really here? Just... <laughs> oh. <sighs> well, does everything feel sideways to you? Well, guys, that, I think the, the, the boat feels like it's rave? spinning. Yes, that's everything I wanted to cover. Again, I just rave. like the idea of, again, instead of like a fancy band playing, it's just a DJ being like, I'm going to keep spinning until the ship goes down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this Daft Punk up there. Yeah. Uh, all right. So hard, now can we talk fun. about the most disturbing sex scene in maybe, maybe cinema history? Because <laughs> this is... A very unnerving sex scene. Sure. I mean, who, who wants to talk about it? I think we all do equally. So I'm going <laughs> to be quiet. What is there to say? <laughs> who, wants to, who wants to take the reins on? Uh, okay. So they. they <laughs> sure. well, I'm just, I, I struggle with this scene. Like, I struggle with what this says about the rest of the movie. Like, are we supposed to read? Nina as a character, not just suppressing adulthood and sexuality in total, but like, it, are we also supposed to read her as a queer character, like closeted to herself, or is this just a weird ass like hallucination? Like, I I struggle with what this scene says about Nina as a whole in terms of queerness and her total character. Yeah, I think. Go ahead. No, it's okay. <laughs> I was just gonna say that that yeah, I feel like I'm I'm in a similar boat and and like part of me is like, is this the only time and it's obviously all fake, but is this the only time that Nina is actually like expressing herself sexually in a way where like no one is telling her like, oh, you can't do this or oh, you should touch yourself this way. Um, but then it does feel a bit like with the masturbation scene, like it's being played for kind of a horror aspect like there's something really unsettling about the whole the whole thing which I yeah that's never great when it comes to queerness too so like it's a it's a scene it's I don't know (laughs) it's it honestly like 
and maybe and maybe this is unfair like someone someone please fucking call me out if i'm putting my foot in my mouth like it feels like a straight man's idea of like lesbian sex scene like we're gonna do this and like yeah it'll work for the story but really like we'll put in the trailers i'll tell you like it'll get guys interested in it like compared to say like uh you know, the kiss in Jennifer's body where, you know, so much more time was spent to like the characters, their relationship, like the, the queerness inherent in their relationship that uh, what feels very natural in that movie felt like, okay, now this scene's happening. And like also the difference between like women filmmakers versus male fil- filmmakers, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. For sure. I, I felt like, I feel like there's a trope especially when you have um, characters that are sexually abused by men and then you see them just immediately uh, in reaction to that have like a sex scene with a woman. Um, and it, I've like in the girl with the dragon tattoo, um, I, I saw that and I was, I'm wondering about the, uh, the depth that that trope goes because it feels very um, sensational, you know? And, and um, you know, it's, it's also... A little I, quick. I have no idea how to even begin to approach the sexual politics of Girl with a Dragon. I mean, that, yes, that movie. Mm hmm. Um, All I know about Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is that there is a girl and she has a dragon tattoo. That's all I know about that movie or book. Yeah, there's that movie has a lot of things that I hate. <laughs> like, Seems to be a common sentiment. Yeah, it's... like rape and cat death. Um, it's like, what if we had a whodunit mystery, but you just felt so awful about just horrific violation and sexual abuse while wrapped in a whodunit mystery that doesn't require any such abuse being shown. Thank you. Um, okay. But there's, so, so there's that aspect of it. What I feel like the scene is about is, um, less about queerness and more about dissociation because uh, Nina with all of these moments where she's seeing herself outside of herself, um, I feel is, is very indicative of dissociation. Um, and then she also sees herself in these other people. Um, and, you know, which is part of the, the uh, kind of being out, well, there's the dissociating and then also the um, the forced competition and her trying to find her identity and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like in this case, I mean, Lily is credited in the movie as the Black Swan. So I feel like this is Nina trying to become Lily rather than to fuck Lily. You know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not about a sexual experience. Well, it's about well, that's a, a trans mood if I've ever heard one. I mean, sure. <laughs> not that that. Not that that's the movie is doing in any way. Just yeah, like that particular. Yeah. <laughs> um, which goes to show how complica- complicated that like sexuality and identity is. But um, but no, I think you hit the nail on the head with dissociation. That like this is apparently in her twenty-eight years, her first time successfully masturbating and i guess the idea is that she can't envision her doing it to herself so she has to imagine another person to her if that's yeah. the idea, like to go with the theory of dissociation well, is- i don't know i may be completely off base i think i think that's that's kind of how i read it yeah because also 
um, she sees Lily as a competitor, but also she, you know, as she is comparing herself to Lily, she represents something that she's trying to achieve, just like with Beth, you know, she steals Beth's stuff in order to achieve what Beth has, which is that prima ballerina uh, position. And in this case, you know, the bad girlness of Lily that she sees, you know, she's trying to, um, you know, accept or not accept sadly, but um, incorporate that into herself. So I think that that's, that's how she sees that um, incorporation is also, you know, as con- is trying to control that part of herself and trying to. Um, I, I do feel like this is the same issue I kind of have discussing this movie from a standpoint of mental health and that like, this is a scene where she is, to the best of her knowledge, having a queer sexual experience, but also she is high as a kite. Um, and also she is hallucinating visually. Um, and she is in the midst of a mental breakdown, um, you know, that <laughs> otherwise, even when she is not high, is, is having, you know, a variety of issues with so like it is it is hard to in a scene like this take those pieces out and be like all right now what is this trying to say about you know her sexuality it's like well i i don't know i guess when she is really high and hallucinating she likes to think she's having sex with women it's it's difficult to like parse um yeah i guess i guess i am curious um you know i think you guys all sort of agreed that there is something very straight and male about this sex scene um i'm I'm curious like what like what how you would define that like how how you think this would be different if directed by a, a female director i think for me there's a lot about the camera work and i feel this way about most um sex scenes between women that are directed by men they all feel a little porny um <laughs> like they are they are laid out in such a way that you're supposed to, and part of that comes from it being a movie, I guess, but part of it is like, it feels very performative. And that's partially probably because uh, presumably the actors involved are straight and their only real experience with this kind of thing is also through porn. Um, for me, a good example of something similar is Blue is the Warmest Color, which is ostensibly a movie about two women in a lesbian relationship, also made by a man and also very obsessed with what sex between two women looks like in a way that has, for me, doesn't actually look like what sex between women looks like but does look a lot like what sex between women looks like if it's in a porno so i don't know for me that's that's kind of how this scene felt for me too even though of course it's less r-rated than than that it felt like a rare time where except for lily shifting tattoo it felt like there was less interested and really it's kind of what makes this scene stand out in a bad way it seems like the one scene that's more focused on, like you said, just being this very kind of titillating, porny scene rather than really getting up close and putting you very in the perspective of Nina's like mental decline. It feels like the one scene where the movie kind of abandoned. Yeah, I feel like the the fact that it is as sensational as it is, you know, the the kind of 
camera work and objectification of the of this um there's a lot of rote uh imagery here with the bumping and the grinding and the you know the serpentine kind of uh movement that's going on um it is it is a little bit more objective uh, rather than subjective to um the rest of well, the rest of the movie is very subjective to nina um so and i feel like there was there was a bit of that in her first masturbation scene um where there was a lot of focus on her panties uh and i mean that felt uncomfortable but it also felt like it was um titillating you know yeah. and i mean and where, that scene is is I, I'm maybe even more obvious to me than this one just because she starts out under the covers and like very specifically rolls out from under the covers so that you get a good look at what she's doing yeah um, you know which is entirely unnecessary to that scene yeah, yeah. And also for that scene, particularly, like the way she's dressed for bed seems deeply out of character for this person who is has been infantilized. Like this girl yeah. would be in pajamas or like a pretty like modest nightgown. She'd be sleeping in like a tank top and panties. Like yeah, especially if her I, mom is worried about her scratching her back. Like exactly. she would yeah. put her in a shirt. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause she was she's always wearing that shrug. Right. Too. Yeah. So, and it's weird for me too, because for me, and this is weird to say, because this scene involves sexual assault, but the actual scene that feels the most like it's trying to be sexy is the one where Tomas is dancing with her and assaults her, but like, like groping her. But that's the only scene in the movie that feels like viscerally, like this is supposed to feel sexy and actually kind of does even as you're like oh this is gross like that guy is like totally taking advantage of somebody in a position of power or that he's in a position of power over that scene is has more feelings of like oh the person directing the scene understands what is sexy about these two characters interacting this way in a way that the scene between lily and nina does not and that juxtaposition is also super weird. Like, yeah. 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 And the, the, the sex scene between um, Lily and Nina also ends with Nina seeing herself as Lily, then then being smothered by a pillow. So not only does she get, I mean, she, um, not only is she seeing herself and she's not really having this experience, but that it also ends with a, uh, an aggression like a, a straight up aggression it's like that's that's part it's like it's like the part of her that you know is is still an infant and still stuck with her mom is like trying to kill the part of her that you know is branching out from that a bit yeah totally yeah. um so she doesn't make any progress with the sex thing sadly <laughs> yeah she uh she she does wake up late and uh is getting ready to leave and realizes her door is still blocked shut from the night before uh, and does look back to see if uh, if Lily is there. Lily is not. Um, and she just kind of shrugs this off and keeps going. I don't... That would be a, a big, big, big hang-up for me at that point, I think. Um, Maybe she went out the window. I mean, I, I guess she does seem to live in a, a high floor of an apartment building. Um, but, sure... 
yeah so she's uh she's wakes up to you know her mom yelling at her um she's she's late she goes off to um rehearsal and you know she uh learn she has uh lily there dancing her part when she arrives um and she tries to confront lily about um leaving and not waking her up and uh it is clear that lily did not go home with her um you know lily lily went home with somebody else last night and uh she asked if uh it was tom yeah not jerry which is like all right yeah, she she asks if uh, forget the exact wording, but if uh, Nina had some sort of lezzy sex dream about her. Yeah, um, lezzy wet dream. Was yeah. I good? Um, the was I good is such an amazing delivery. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> like really, like heavy movie. The the amusing way she delivers that is so good, and also like her lack of concern about it really spoke to me about Lily as a character. She's just yeah. like, oh wait, you like had a dream about having sex with okay. Was it was it good? Was it yeah. like she wasn't wor- like she wasn't concerned. She wasn't freaked out. She was just like she wasn't judgmental. Kind of- <laughs> yeah. She was just like, that's kind of funny. <laughs> was it at least enjoyable? And that really worked for me for her. Yeah. It's almost like that bit later on where um Nina goes by the uh the guy in the wizard costume. And like this whole movie up to then, the the wizard, the evil like Rothgard or whatever the fuck his name is, the evil wizard is like a super creepy, monstrous character. And in this case, it's just the guy, the dancer. And he he walks by and he's like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe one of the, the most only character. Part. The only character that isn't a monster is the one playing a monster. Yeah. Damn. I feel like the, the way Nina or the way Lily delivers that line, the way Mila Kunis delivers that line is so like Lily is maybe the the best person out of this group. Like yeah. she's you know, she is uh true truly decent and uh you know kind of down for whatever. Um but yeah, this is this is obviously disturbing for Nina. Nina goes home and starts emptying out all of the uh pink and fluffy ballerina stuff from her room and throwing it down the garbage chute um she also sees her reflection scratching itself in the mirror and not uh well she is not physically doing so yeah while she's getting her measurements i love this scene of nina just throwing out everything childish in her room because i'm just like yeah nina just power through the middle night (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's gotta happen sometime she also throws the ballerina music box on the floor, um, which she doesn't throw it away, but she sure as hell breaks the ballerina. Um, it's symbolism. What? What symbolism? What's that? Subtext, Darren Aaron. What are you talking about? Um, Subtext is for cowards. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We find out again after this that Lily has been made her alternate. Um, she's very upset about this. She's convinced that Lily is trying to sabotage her. Um, Again, I definitely think this where it's horrifying in this scene, even slightly from like someone else's perspective, just like echoes of like Beth. And it, it's just, like, just how quickly and Nina's paranoia has taken over because 
well, of course she has to have an alternate. Like, how could she yeah. not have an alternate? And yet, just that catastrophic reaction. I mean, you know, in addition to just, I and I think so much of it is also, uh, I think she's in burnout. I think a lot of what Nia's going through, like at least partially burnout. Like I know part of like when I've gone through really bad burnout, when I knew I was burnout was when I was dealing with like a super minor challenge or inconvenience and I would just melt down over it. Yeah. And just, God, just the stress and the burnout Nina's going through just comes out in that scene. And her paranoia has been cultivated by Tomas. Like that's, that's the thing too, is that Tomas sees her, she's like freaking out about that, the choice, not just the fact that she has an alternate, but that Lily is the alternate. And um, Tomas like not only convinces her that it's a no big deal but also is like you know he's he's i mean i would assume he's very aware that her paranoia is a result of him pitting these uh people against each other um so and this is the point at which uh, even tomas tells her that she should go rest uh for you know for the performance that's coming up and uh she refuses to go to do so and goes and rehearses more and then the piano guy quits on her <laughs> The jaded piano player, as stated in the credits. Jaded piano player ain't getting paid for time extra, so he's going the fuck home. And this is is where the reflection really starts to to go insane, because she is not syncing up with herself in the mirror, and she is uh, really starting to lose it. And uh, then the the lights go out um, in the theater, and there's there's nobody there to turn them back on this time as there was earlier in the movie, um, and and she sees she finds Lily and Tomas having sex on a, a table in the behind the curtain, and then Tomas turns into the evil wizard, um, and so she decides that all of this definitely is happening, and she is going to go uh, see Beth in the hospital because. That seems, I guess, like the logical thing for her to do at this point to her um, and return all the stuff she stole from Beth because she's starting to see really the stress that Beth was under. Um, and I have no idea how much of any of this is actually happening in the movie because this is where like she puts the nail file down and Beth says something about, oh, you, you stole my stuff and then picks up the nail file and starts stabbing herself in the face. Um, and then... Uh, uh, Nina runs to the the elevator to run away from Beth and discovers that she is holding the bloody nail file in her own face, like straight up Babadook style. Um, Did she she stab Beth? Yeah, and and then bloody Beth starts showing up like in her house, um, in her kitchen. uh, Distinct screaming. Yeah, she's she's hearing voices. And this is uh, Ben's favorite part where she goes to find her mom and goes into her mom's room and all of her mom's paintings are screaming at her um, yeah, and the moving. sweet girl, what happened to my sweet girl? Uh, this scene, it's just, I, I don't know what to say aside from just, it's just so effectively upsetting. This bit is actually taken directly from Perfect Blue. Um, this is one of those those very like literal homage moments. Um, although in Perfect Blue, it's a bunch of posters that are all kind of saying they don't they don't um, emote so much, but they all are talking to uh, like this this um, stalker character. So it's a different context, but the uh, the the concept there. Um, 
but it's it's I think even more disconcerting that we have all of these like weird some of them are just kind of spooky drawings and like um grotesque sketches yeah that are now screaming um yeah at which point she she retreats to her room and when her mom does show up she uh shuts her out of the room shuts the door on her hand and uh discovers that these little bumps that have been showing up on her skin are actually uh sprouting black feathers um which is is a line for her because she's going to bed at that point (laughs) yeah the 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 pin feathers that she's growing out of the bumps like that is one of those those weird images that really resonates with somebody that has that compulsion because you like there's also an an um another symptom a compulsive uh behavior where you pull out hair um and it's sort of like a compulsive compulsive pulling of hair and that's that's very evocative of that um and uh i feel like i mean as much as it it sounds like she's you know it's it's sensationalized certainly um it is a very it's like a weirdly relatable image despite of how grotesque it is um and how specific it is because that's another thing about this movie is that they choose aspects of swanness um that they they manage to make the most like to make grotesque because when you think about, you know, there's a, there's this very beautiful um, lyrical imagery of this swan, the, you know, a woman who is swan-like or a man who is swan-like um, or, you know, a person, a swan-like person and, and how that is a, you know, a sort of um, beauty ideal. And you have the, uh, you know, the image of, of, of bird wings um, and but we they they focus on so many bird elements that are just horrifying. Like her legs start changing, you yeah. know, her feet start changing. Where it, you're not quite sure if it's a um, it's her sort of reacting to the amount of abuse that her legs have taken, um, and you know, and the 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 weird uh, imagery associated with that, or if it's you know she's becoming the swan where she's you know the whole structure of her leg is changing to be something less human um it's uh and then you know at one point her neck elongates and becomes kind of pin feathered and bumpy so um you know in terms of of visual uh vocabulary i think they were very it was very well chosen um what what elements to uh to utilize yeah and uh, this is where we, we really hit sort of the climax of things because she wakes up and finds that, you know, she's she's overslept. Her mother has locked her in her room. Basically, she's taken the doorknob off of the door. Um, she she twists her mom's injured hand to get her out of the way so she can get the doorknob and uh, get out. She goes in and finds that, you know, Lily is uh, getting ready to sub in for her part because she's several hours late and uh, refuses to let that happen. Um she Lily is fairly like normal in this scene um, as compared to the later scenes where we'll see her um, because uh, yeah Nina goes out and, and dances her first part is the white swan uh, is freaking out and nervous and hallucinating and gets dropped from a hold at one point um, and she she goes back to her uh, dressing room where Lily is waiting for her dressed as the black swan and she says she's going to go ahead and take over and dance the part 
Uh, they fight. Nina throws her into a mirror, breaks it, and then stabs her to death with a piece of the shattered mirror. Well, and then we hides have to remember. The <laughs> well, we have first that it turns into Nina. Lily turns into Nina. So we have Natalie Portman fighting herself. And I have to ask, did we do that on purpose? That we scheduled back-to-back movies of Natalie Portman fighting her own doppelganger? I don't think so. I think it's just coincidence that we I talked think that about is coincidental, but you know. Like, that's one of those, like, if I had a nickel for every time we watched a movie where Natalie Portman fought her own doppelganger, I'd have two nickels. <laughs> and weirdly, this is the one where she doesn't dance fight her doppelganger. I mean, True. okay. Annihilation, right. they do have a dance fight. Um, sort of. A very ballet-like dance fight. Um, All I know about that fight is that it ends with a bang. This one started with a bang. Ah. So she it's funny because sex. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're all, all night, right. Um So she she has to go dance the black swan part. So she goes ahead and hides uh, Lily's body in the the bathroom, and. Um, then starts really transforming into the black swan. Her eyes go red and she starts growing feathers and stuff as she is dancing. Um, she, you know, at one point aggressively kisses Tomas as she steps off stage. Um, Tomas is into the whole like super confident black swan, Nina, and I, I hate him. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, and it's all like he's everyone's just cool with it. Like, everybody's oh. in love with it. Like, yeah worshiping her for it uh nina goes back to her dressing room where who knocks on her door to congratulate her it's the not dead lily what a relief everything's fine now but who (laughs) did she stab with that glass then nobody no there's nobody in the bathroom there's not a dead body or the blood seeping under the door that we saw before but uh yeah she does uh, look down and discover that she has in fact stabbed herself and pulls a nice chunk of glass out of her stomach um, to, to nicely illustrate the point. Um, oh, oh it was that that was not really pulling the glass out. Just uh, I will yeah, say this. A- yeah. Um, some pretty intense like adrenaline going on there. If she's you know, also she's wearing white and she's managed to stab herself and not gotten blood everywhere yet well she's wearing black for the chunk after she stabs herself but then okay she goes back to white she uh she does start bleeding on the uh on the thing she goes out and perfectly dances the the rest of the thing looks out over the crowd and you know sees sees her mom and sees taman sees everybody uh loving the amazing job she has done and uh, dives off the the cliff into the the mattress to end the play, and everybody rushes to come congratulate her before realizing that she is currently bleeding to death. Um, and they they call for help, but it's it's way too late. And she ends the movie by saying, "I felt it perfect. It was perfect." And, That's and the movie. Uh, yeah, Black Swan. So I, um, here's a good here's a question though. Usually they have people dress you in when you're doing the the costume change so when did that when did that glass get in there because like wouldn't the costume director or whatever whoever your your costume attendant would wouldn't they be like hey you know you gotta like a, a little something right a here glass? 
movie magic. (laughs) We were actually talking about this when we watched it because we weren't sure like if that's actually the case. Because like I know in lots of stage performance kind of stuff, there's very little time. So unless you have a very complicated costume, it's kind of up to you to change your outfit and to get your makeup. Okay. Yeah, it's just like she's doing her makeup between like she's responsible for that. So I think we can. Okay. Although she is the lead. Yeah. So you like some like question. Not like the person in the lead role wouldn't have somebody to to do that for her. But it does seem to have a bit of time between her her couple of of uh, acts because she she does have enough time to fight and murder herself um, between being the white swan and being the black swan. Um, I, I don't know I how long it. that takes. Uh, I mean, presumably some of your wrestling might be hallucinatory, um, but you know, she, she does have enough time to, uh, to go through or at least you know, imagine all of that between her performances. Yeah, I feel like in writer's terms that no one noticing the stab wound falls under purview trope of please don't ask or else this whole she stabbed herself twist won't work yeah i mean dreams occur within seconds right like you know you can have a lifetime of a dream that that occurs within a second so you know she probably hallucinated a lot of stuff and then ended up with glass in her you know like picard lived a whole life when that uh that weird asteroid beamed into his head and he like fell asleep God, on the, the bridge. The only thing that would have made that episode better is if it taught Patrick Stewart how to do ballet. How do we know it didn't? He has to go back another lifetime, but this time- Yeah, we gotta go. This is just Patrick Stewart in Black Swan. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> and on that note- So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about um, our-, our Big questions are are talking points here. Uh, I guess first and easiest to relate is uh, how does the movie deal with uh, race? It doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't. doesn't. I don't think there is a character of color at all on screen. Nope. Yeah. There's no, there's no people. Uh, Which, I mean, is sadly until, you know, recently, maybe not much of an exaggeration for ballet um like the there has been an issue with you know the people who not the people who do ballet but the people who cast ballets who choose people for ballets uh at a a high level not casting people of color um so that's maybe not all on the people making this movie uh but it, it does not make any effort to address any of that um also class like how does it deal with class I mean, there there definitely is a, like a, a power and class divide between, you know, our our main character Nina and both you know the uh, the director Tomas and then you know the sort of elite crowd of people that she's she's greeting when she's being introduced around as the new lead. Um, but I don't think this movie goes to any great pains to talk about class in a meaningful way. Anybody? Yeah, I, I I think there's you know visual world building but not it's not something the movie's exploring explicitly or deeply yeah i mean it, i think it's just you know the amount of class that is wrapped up or the, the amount of class commentary that is wrapped up with ballet um 
and ballet. the yeah well in, in this particular form of this particular ballet um culture um no also I, thinking I, I apologize i do love just I mean, I'm always a sucker for any movie where people just have their passion and just take it so seriously, even if it is a case like this movie where it just takes it to the darkest extreme possible. I mean, yes. Yeah, like I'm a sucker for Yu-Gi-Oh, right? So <laughs> don't even yeah. start. The, Look, listen. The card game. This, the card game that destroys people. So does this movie not end with Natalie Portman in the shadow realm? Of going her into own the mind? Sh- being banished to the shadow realm. Yes. <laughs> Which I gotta say, if a billionaire challenged me to a card game and then stole my grandfather's soul, fuck, that's a horror movie all on its own. I mean, most of that actually happens except for the card game part. Like, we don't even get card games, it's just healthcare. Oh, God. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> that's... So we don't even play a game. You're saying that life. Life is like the, the anime series Yu-Gi-Oh, just without the fun card games involved. Yeah, like if you fuck up, you go to the Shadow Stone. Billionaires and you're more just likely to your win. Grandfather and, oh no. Uh, okay, here's here's a tough question for you guys. Uh, is Black Swan feminist? No, no. It's <laughs> I the okay. fact that they're. Oh. Go ahead. I, I was just gonna say that the fact that there weren't women involved at the high level making the movie can just be felt so hard it i feel like it tries a little bit because it's talking about beauty standards but that's how how far it goes you know like it doesn't really make an effort to address those things as opposed to you just having them unfolded like this is already fucked up so we're just gonna go ahead and talk about this other thing yeah, a hundred percent. I was gonna say it doesn't really engage with with anything meaningful there. I would. Say. Yeah, um, it has these these things that are horrific in and of themselves. But I don't know if it was as aware of those things being as horrific as they are in the time that it was created. Yeah, like I'm not sure that Aronofsky at, in 2010 making this movie would have even positioned Tomas as being a fucking rapist because he is. Like, yeah. I don't even know that that's necessarily something that would have occurred to him in the making of this movie. And like, I, that stuff, you can't make a movie about women and not really consider that for what it is. I think it was hung up on like the sexuality of those scenes and not on the extremely fucked up, like reality of what was happening in them. Yeah. The, the, the grooming. Yeah. Even even when she is sexually assaulted, and we almost immediately afterwards find her crying, and you know, or Lily finds her crying in in the warm up room, it seems like she's upset that she's having difficulty with ballet, not that she was just sexually assaulted by her, you know, her creative director. Yeah, because like the scene, and I I mentioned this before, that scene is like presented as sexy, like she's enjoying it as far as the movie wants it. So like, even though this person is absolutely taking advantage of his position over her, like, she's like, this is fun. He even says it, I seduced you. And yeah. like- That was, I hated that. That was not seduction, that was assault. Right. Good Lord. And the fact that he thinks that was seduction. Oh. I but I think Loki, the movie even thinks that's seduction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this, it's not one of the older movies we've watched, but like it has aged a lot in the last 10 years. 
Sure has. Yeah. This has been a decade. Yeah. All capital letters, decade. I mean, on that front, how do we feel about how this movie deals with LGBTQIA issues and people? Uh, Doesn't. Badly. Doesn't. I'm going to say doesn't. badly. Yeah, it doesn't. It, it, yeah. Un, un, unthoughtfully. Yeah. It's used for, I think, shock value as and as a metaphor for more than for with actual characters being queer so yeah it's bad it's bad in that way yeah it's worse than jennifer's body it like jennifer's body to me especially generally feels like real queer representation this feels like this not feels like it you it like it used queerness without making its characters queer yeah I mean, placing placing the queerness amongst so much other like horrifying stuff that's going on really contextualizes it in just the weirdest possible way. Like we get no real feel for how the character of, of Nina actually feels about any of this or like what her sexuality is out of this. It's just like, it, it feels like part of the downward spiral in a weird and unfortunate way. Yeah, it just it's it's impossible for her. It feels like reverse queer baiting, where queer baiting is queer in the relationship and all, but explicitly romantic. Then this was explicitly sexual without any of the build up and queer identity and bond that would have made it impactful. I feel like the character of Lily in this movie is trying to drag it up to a better level than it is. Because yeah. like she oh. is I do. accepting and and uh, not not necessarily I mean I guess to some extent sexual and open in a way that like the rest of the movie is not and it I is do. not necessarily projected as bad. Uh, I do absolutely love that when being when Nina reveals that she thought her and Lily had sex. Lily's first thought is, "Was I good?" Yeah, yeah. But, you know what's asking asking the, the real questions in two thousand stuff, which is like that immediate gay panic that so many of those those things have. Uh, you know, there's not that Seinfeld response of "huh," not that there's anything wrong with that. It's like, "Oh, really? Tell me more." You know, there there is a point in the movie where um, Lily says that Tom and Jerry are gay lovers to sort of shame them. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, which is not great. So uh, I, I guess the, the the only other question we really have is like how we feel about how this deals with mental illness, which I, I think we've talked about quite a bit. Um, but, you know, it, it does deal with it in sometimes in interesting ways. There is a, a you know, a push early on in the movie to depict things in, in a way that is, uh, you know, maybe honest and interesting. And then is, as it gets further into the movie, like what's being depicted is not a specific mental illness or an outgrowth of, you know, the OCD or anything like that, but like specifically psychosis. Like she is seeing and hearing things that are not there. Um, and in, not in a way that somebody who is, you know, schizophrenic or dealing with multiple personality disorder necessarily would. Um, but in just, a, you know, in a horror movie kind of way. You guys feel like that's fair? Yeah, I think so. I think that's kind of the case with most like psychological thrillers or horror movies. Like 
you know, if you get too, too hung up on, I guess, diagnosing the characters when you're making the film, then are held to a standard, I guess, that you don't have to be. If you're just like, it's a horror movie. She's saying things. She's hearing things. Awful things are happening. But are they really happening? Who knows? Um, I think the OCD stuff, again, not diagnosed in the film as that, but I think all of that really works for me as is diagnosed with OCD. <laughs> like it's it's like compulsions are a way of dealing with anxiety and her anxiety just ramps up and up. So the the use of that as a storytelling method, I think is really interesting and also feels really real to me. But yeah, the later stuff, I would love to hear somebody who does have experiences with psychosis, who with things like that, actually. Because, yeah, I think here, once we get to that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, speaking not as somebody who has, you know, been diagnosed with, with any of those things, but as somebody who has made an effort to write mental illness in fiction in a accurate and meaningful way, uh, it's hard and it seems to be harder than what Darren Aronofsky wants to do here. Like he, he just wants it to be creepy and scary and to, you know, focus on this underlying obsession um, of, of perfection uh, and not to, you know, talk necessarily about, uh, you know, any, any sort of real mental illness that would require consulting psychologists or psychiatrists to to talk about in a meaningful way um you know and i i don't know it's it's hard to say that like that is uh i mean not not in any way valid but it seems it seems at odds with the depiction of mental illness earlier in the film which um you know seems well thought out and and caring and careful in some ways that like the last act is is not and doesn't try to be I'm back. I don't really have much more to add to that other than, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, this is something that's just super complicated and needs utmost care. And Darren Aronofsky really just wanted to do the scary story about spooky, crazy people. Yeah. I, I, I Which, think, you know, we, we lose a lot of the nuance in the third act. Yeah, especially once it's full on, again, like very beautiful swan transformations. But it, at that point, we're in the realm of quasi psychological magical realism. Yeah. Yeah, I think the not quite knowing what's actually real is part of what makes the movie so interesting to watch, but also makes all of the psychological horror stuff questionable. Because it's like, how much, if you told me that. It, if Aronofsky decided tomorrow to be like, no, everything that she experienced actually happened, but like, because magic, it didn't like, whatever, end it, up being the way she thought it was or whatever, I would be like, okay, that's a way of looking at that. that the only way I'd be okay with that is if we then got a spinoff short of the audience just being like, I don't know how they're pulling off this wing transformation, but it's these are some great <laughs> ballet of special effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's doing close-up magic on stage with her wings just popping out of her arms um slight right. of wing yes yeah, slight of wing um all right so all that said do we feel like this is a movie that we would recommend people see once recommend people see it once yeah. so this yeah. is my 
third time watching this movie. So clearly something about it speaks to me. So I guess, yes, everyone <laughs> should watch this. I, I would recommend it um, because of, especially like if people who understand what they understand now about um, abuse in entertainment industry and creative industry, um, you know, and with all of the, the content warnings uh, up front, I think that this could be a, a very important movie for people just, you know, to, to see um, that unflinching up close personal view of grooming um even though the movie isn't very as as intentional about it as it should be um i think it still can read that way um and you know it's less saying something about um mental illness and more just presenting some very relatable imagery for people who are trying to deal with mental illness you know through imagery but um you know again it, it does have it does uh, go down some problematic roads there, um, but yeah. it's definitely a fantastic discussion piece and beautifully made. All the sets are gorgeous, and all, you know all these decisive um, thematic designs of the backgrounds. You know, you have elaborate backgrounds, you have sterile backgrounds where it's you know the, the use of mirrors, things like that. It's a lot of fantastic art department. Yeah. What about you, Megan? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it's one of those horror movies that sort of sort of something along the lines of like like uh, nightmare two right we're viewing it with the space of time and and kind of what we know now really gives it a different meaning than anything that was made than than you know when it was made in its time um but yeah anyway nightmare two is a great movie <laughs> everyone watch it <laughs> yeah, we watched it's... that one together last year and it was oh nice fun, so <laughs> it's it's interesting that you bring up Nightmare 2 because I, I was just thinking about how like this movie we, we talk sometimes about um, movies having LGBT themes that are actually kind of good but that the people making it don't seem to know are there yeah. um, and even <laughs> in like uh, you know one, one of our movies that was explicitly gay there being a sort of interesting trans narrative that they don't seem to know is there and that it's it's unclear whether they meant to have there. Uh, it's I, great and heartbreaking, and seems to be completely by accident. Yeah, yeah, Hellbent. Yeah, has this surprisingly like deep trans narrative that it does not seem to realize is there. Um, Hellbent, the best gay, the best eighties horror movie made in the two thousands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and I feel like in the same way, this movie has all these like interesting things to say about sexism and grooming and sexual abuse and uh, the, you know, the, the way that these women have to navigate this world that it does not seem to know uh, what it is actually saying in the movie and may be intended very differently and seems to have been read at least by, you know, the director very differently. There's these scenes that, he seems to think are sexy and are clearly like very the, the bother us as as watchers now that like um you know it's it's very easy to take something away from this movie that is is not explicitly in this movie um in, a, in an interesting way um so yeah i would say that i would tell people who are not squeamish about all the tons and tons of things that we have mentioned that are in this movie to you know give it a try 
it, it does have some interesting things to say. It's by far not like not the perfect you know breakthrough that maybe we would like it to be in some ways, and it certainly doesn't have the um, for for a movie that is is often thrown in lists of like great queer horror movies, it does not deal well with the queer issues in the movie. Um, that said, uh, is there anything we would recommend for people that uh, saw this movie and either want to see something more like it or something that deals with some of these things better? Uh, Megan, did you have anything you wanted to recommend? Uh, yeah, first, uh, Sebastian Stan's entire filmography. Um, <laughs> Especially Hot Tub Time Machine. Especially. <laughs> um, second, uh, Attack of the Clones. Uh, and, no, I'm just kidding. Like, uh, <laughs> third... <laughs> Suspiria, I think, obviously, is one that's going to come oh, up a yes. lot um, in comparison with this movie. Uh, one that's not a horror movie, but that deals with similar themes of perfection would probably be Whiplash. Um, and then... Uh, no, I got to quickly come up with a different recommendation. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. No. Uh, <laughs> I had... Oh, I was going to say, and then I have to recommend the horror movie uh, that I think everyone should watch, Chopping Mall. That's the last recommendation. Well, I want to make that sure that's specific not... to to Swan Lee or to uh, Black Swan, or is that just something you, you would recommend no matter what general. we watch? No, Megan, that's I, like a general. Megan, <laughs> I want to make sure I understand. this isn't shopping mall. This is chopping shopping mall. mall. Yes, shopping yes. mall. Um, and there is uh, similar. There's no similar themes, but it's fun. So I think, yeah. I think there are a lot. There, yeah. <laughs> The similar... that there are themes around sexuality and right. sexuality yes. and whether or not that's vilified that you could totally bring the up. The theme is sexuality it's is handled ch- just as elegantly in both movies. Exactly. <laughs> theme is it's called Chopping Mall. That's all I fucking need. I'm going to watch this movie. It's perfect. It's brilliant. It's disgusting. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's about evil robot security guards. You know. Well, you need nothing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Elizabeth, uh, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, so we already talked about a couple of them, um, but one for sure is the Satoshi Kon TV show, Paranoia Agent, um, which is has kind of a similar theme about somebody who is struggling with mental health and um, is also hallucinating, but her hallucinations are actually coming to life and affecting the world. And it's also about like the pressure of performance and what people expect of you. And it is beautifully animated. And I think the only TV show that Satoshi Kon ever made. So it's, and it's not very long. It's like 12 episodes, but I recently rewatched it. Gorgeous. Everyone should watch it. Um, Another one that's not a horror movie, but I thought about a lot while I was watching this because of like gender politics stuff is this incredible German like dramedy called The Misandrist that I saw a couple of years ago. And it is, first of all, hilarious, a little bit tongue in cheek. It's about a group of radical feminists who all live together in like this commune style house situation. There's some like slightly fucked up stuff that happens in it. So be careful watching it I guess some like gender identity stuff a little bit of surprising body horror (laughs) kinds of things um but it's it's a real it's a romp I guess and then um one more is this beautiful horrible I 
this came out a couple years ago. It's a French film called Climax. It is a movie about a group of dancers who all go to like a remote like getaway to like get together and they're about to embark on like a tour and somebody spikes their punch with LSD. So they're all having like crazy tripping, like horrible experiences. And this movie is so scary that I almost walked out of the theater when I watched it because I'm kind of squeamish but if you like those kinds of movies it's a little bit like Suspiria I think and that like there's a lot of visual and elements that are really fun and interesting but also it's scary and awful and it's great so if you want to watch more movies about dancers dancing and also horrible things happening around them climaxes have you seen have you seen the the new Suspiria or um the or we talk about the old Dario Argento Suspiria that's a good question I feel like the old the anything Dario Argento does is going to be crazy and weird and and yeah (laughs) a better time (laughs) yeah I mean you're you're, you may not love either of them but if you watch Dario Argento version you're definitely gonna have some like what the fuck is going on (laughs) (laughs) but it feels so like David Lynch like so Twin Peaks before Twin Peaks you know it's, it's yeah, a good that movie. I, I watched that movie for the first time this last October. And uh, while I enjoyed it, I do feel like that's a movie that you watch and you're like, there's an entire other movie that they cut out to make this movie that explains what the fuck's going on because this movie is unconcerned with explaining itself. Yeah. Uh, ben, what have you got for us? All right. Recommendations. Uh, if you want another movie with dancing in it, uh, step up to the streets. <laughs> Great, <Rex. laughs> Not being able to use whiplash really threw me for a I'm loop. sorry. No, no, please don't. I have like stolen other people's recommendations before they can do it. So it's finally time for like <laughs> karma to blow in my direction. Um, <laughs> if you want another movie where people turn into vaguely maybe or maybe not bird people hybrids, uh, watch Birdman starring Michael Keaton. I love Birdman. All right. Good friend. Yeah. All right, Emily, what have you got? Well, I, I there's Perfect Blue, um, at, which I want to say is uh, is interesting because it is use, using the similar kind of um, magical realism, but also um, you know kind of the imagery in this movie. But we also effectively get inside the head of multiple characters, not just our protagonist. Um, it is masterful. There are some sexual assault scenes um, and graphic murder scenes. Um, so watch out for that. Um, and if you also like the the um, metaphorical uh, psychological symbolism, try the show Hannibal. A lot of stress, a lot of uh, you know pressure resulting in some um, and grooming. A lot of grooming in that one. Not that I'm saying that that's that's a reason that you would want to watch something, but um, uh, in terms of the way that imagery is used, uh, I feel like they're they, they're kind of the same um, beast in that regard. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm I'm going to be the one to to do this. Um, Darren Aronofsky has some other movies that uh, you should also see once. Um, Requiem for a Dream, like we said is a very good movie. Don't watch it alone. Maybe bring somebody with you to watch that movie. That was a mistake I made. 
I watched that movie alone. <laughs> it is it is very beautiful. It is very disturbing. Um, give yourself a chaser as well. Like you don't want to watch it right before bed. You want to like give yourself some time to watch like Steven Universe or something after that. Yeah, prep something that like you watch when you need to feel good. Bring your for me, it's you know Princess Bride, right? Bring bring Princess Bride with you uh, on this trip. Uh, Pi is the same way. Pi is a little less disturbing, uh, but not by much. Um, it's it's a tough one to watch. Uh, Darren Aronofsky is a really good filmmaker. Uh, he does not always know his his own limits, which I, I think is something that holds Black Swan back a little bit. Uh, I do also really like The Wrestler, which is his, which if you like the way that this movie is filmed, where it's over the shoulder, it's following the person, it has a very strict like first person or you know third person, uh, strict third person. Um, then like that's that's a great movie um and mickey Rourke gives an outstanding performance in it uh it, it's no mistake that he got an oscar for that um you know we talked about jennifer's body uh, if you haven't seen jennifer's body go watch jennifer's body we've we've done it on here it's a good movie uh and it does some of the things that this movie tries to do much better than this movie does those things um and it's it's infinitely more fun um, <laughs> Black Swan is, is compelling but not fun in any stretch um, if, if you do want to watch something about people slowly descending into madness uh, The Machinist is uh, a really good performance by Christian Bale in a kind of okay movie <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's I think easily Christian Bale's best performance I'm not a person that really champions him as an actor a whole lot um, but like he really goes all the way on this movie. Um, I would also recommend there's this, this book I read uh, by Neil Jordan called The Dream of a Beast, which is a real weird book. Uh, Neil Jordan is also a filmmaker. He's made a lot of uh, interesting films, some good, some not so good. The Dream of a Beast is this real weird thing about a, a man who is uh, slowly transforming into some sort of monstrous creature over the course of the story and starts finding himself feeling more and more alien to his world. It is unclear whether this is a literal transformation or just something he's feeling um, and is just a super um, weird thing to read. Uh, and given that all of the things that I'm recommending uh, for the most part are, are very serious, uh, and say you did watch Requiem for a Dream, this is maybe not a bad one to follow it with. If you want to see another very strange movie with Mila Kunis in it, hey man, go check out Jupiter Ascending. <gasps> I love Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> she's, she's the main character, Jupiter Jones, in that movie. Uh, it would be difficult to, to argue that Channing Tatum is not the most important character in that movie, uh, given that he is a, a werewolf with rocket skates. Um, I've always but, loved dogs. I love dogs. <laughs> but that is absolutely a movie you should watch uh, from the Wachowskis. It's wild. What, like If you haven't seen it, whatever you think it is, it's not that. <laughs> my, boyfriend, my boyfriend loves that movie and he keeps trying to get me to watch it i don't really have any like 
issues with watching it, but he refuses to tell me anything about it. You have, have to watch it. You, you have to watch it. You can't know anything it. going <laughs> It is, it is, it's like the fifth element, but with like less plot. <laughs> There's an incredible Listen. scene I'm thinking about in the car with like some like pads that is just, I think about it all. Yeah, no, it's. All right. You have to watch it with me then, Megan. Okay. Listen, all I all I ever want to tell people about that movie is that Channing Tatum plays a werewolf with rocket skates, um, and that bee that uh, Jupiter Jones has never been stung by a bee because bees recognize royalty. Yeah, they can. Though she does not know that she is a a lost I'm princess. I'm sorry. I know. refuse to acknowledge <laughs> that there is a character named Jupiter Jones who is not a private eye in outer space. <laughs> Not yet. Also, Terry Gilliam is in that movie in an acting role. <laughs> yeah, it's that movie. wild. Like, what a wreck. That's very good. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Is it better than David Cronenberg as a mob boss in a bowling alley? I, I think it's as like wild one to as one. David Cronenberg's performance is in that movie. Fucking Eddie Redmayne's performance in Jupiter Ascending. Oh is my much god. Weirder. It's way weirder. It's so weird. <laughs> like Delivery. his collagen lips. Like, <laughs> like he's like, what is this? Like, what? What? What the fuck? And destroy it. <laughs> he's, he's like loud whispering the whole movie. Uh, it's uh, it's most maybe most like uh, <laughs> um, what's uh, I think the performance it's most like is the Margaret Thatcher performance in The Crown. <laughs> of just, like, <laughs> The way that Amazing. she delivers all of her lines is just like, that's a choice. All right. <laughs> that happened. Uh, I think like 85% of the reason I've never seen Jupiter Ascending is because of Eddie Redmayne being in it. I can't, because I cannot deal. So yeah. is, I'll have to get over that somehow. He is turned, I mean, he is turned up to 150 in this movie. So whether like you love Wait. Eddie Redmayne or hate Eddie Redmayne, this movie is just going to reinforce. Your yeah, opinion. you're going to fill in. God. I don't know. I felt like my experience, I never saw it just because the last Wachowski sisters movie, sisters movie I watched, ah, talking, good at words, was Cloud Atlas, a movie where I walked out being like, okay, I appreciate every single bold decision you made. I don't think a single one of them worked, but I'm glad <laughs> you made them. That was the one with like the slightly racist decisions, right? Or yeah, the overly like, racist decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. yep. It, it sure was. Cool. I I'm haven't like, seen that one either, but just every five minutes of the movie, I just found myself going, Oh, okay. Well, that was a choice. Yeah. Uh, Jupiter Sending, you will have that same feeling. But you will be laughing giddily as you say it. Yeah, it's 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 not it's nowhere near as racist. If I don't think there's very there's like I mean unless you're there's B racism, but um, I'm pretty sure you got to find a Jerry Seinfeld movie for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. About me, B movie. Megan oh, <laughs> yeah. and I, I did, recently did a double feature of B movie and Wicker Man. <laughs> So we're like really ready to talk about bees. Which yes. Wicker Man? Oh, that was the Nicholas Cage Wicker Man. Nicholas, yeah, because yeah. that's the B the one. Nicholas Cage Wicker Man. <laughs> we need to sh- talk about Wicker Man on this show. The original oh. Wicker Man. Wicker Man needs a reappraisal. I think. Yes. Because like the gender politics alone in him, him 
punching like 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 women and it's just like straight up like old women Nicolas Cage being like bam well this guy I, walks oh, I was talking about the old wicker man oh, yeah no we're talking about the new wicker man I, the one Christopher Lee Nicholas walks into a a society run by women and immediately decides that everything they're doing is wrong even though they have a totally functional society. And, and then he starts part. punching people yeah. and then he starts yelling at everybody in sight. It's incredible. And he's, I, and he's a chip. He's, I just a say- cop. Yeah. he's a California highway patrol officer in he's this like movie. And he's badge like flashing his badge. And I'm like, we know you're a chip. You're not even a real detective. So when you say chip, <laughs> you meant like from Jennifer's body? Because- We're- we're, we, we're really trying to make that the chip character and just make that the term to cover all characters of that type, the kind who doesn't believe the main character or gives them a hard time for being stressed that they're going through horror movie stuff. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, the, at least the guy in the original uh, Wicker Man movie is like a an officer doing a thing but from the get-go like he's just an asshole um it's truly an incredible film like i, I, every, I haven't I feel like we need a double feature of wicker man and midsommar yeah oh, God. <laughs> or wicker man, and wicker man oh both wicker man's back to back yeah because christopher lee in drag yep in the original wicker man and if i don't i've actually never seen the nicholas cage one i just know about it mimetically i haven't seen it but i have seen the looping gif of him running through a forest punching an old lady in a bear costume right right it's incredible but- it's like it's so weird but also so like uh like it's trying to do something it's so sincere it's so sincere it's like- that sounds like a nicholas cage movie <laughs> It like it's almost it, like it's a little bit laughable in places, but like it's so bit. really trying to like make some statements about masculinity. Is it a musical though? No, but like it's like it's totally like I don't. It's ahead of its time, I think. Well, I <laughs> when it comes to Nicolas Cage movies, I really want us to do Mom and Dad, so I can have an excuse to spend an hour talking about the Grant Morrison cameo. Oh my god. You know what Nicolas Cage movie I want to... I've, I've already mentioned the one that I want to talk about. Is this the uh, vampire one? Uh, oh, the, the mul- okay. Multiple. Because Vampire's Kiss, yeah. that's a movie and a half. If you haven't seen Vampire's Kiss, that's the one that we all know mimetically but haven't realized. Now, that movie is kind of incredible. And it is like before Nicolas Cage's prime, but... <clears throat> I would highly recommend it. Doesn't he do the entire movie in sunglasses? Not, no, no, he not yet. Because like, well, first he thinks he's bitten by a vampire. And then later on, he like dons sunglasses and um, fake vampire teeth because he can't afford real like teeth extensions. So he puts the fucking like uh, gosh upon teeth that you like the Halloween teeth in his mouth and goes to a club. He went to Chuck E. Cheese and he traded in the 50 tickets to get the vampire fangs. Yeah, I mean, that movie, Inflation. The Vampire's yeah. Kiss is also like, you know, d- d- there's some racisms in there. Uh, watch out for that. But um, the, uh, yeah, that right. movie, that's where he screams the alphabet. <laughs> that's, uh, 
let's wrap this up so you guys can uh, go on about your day and Ben and I can go to sleep. Uh, I do <laughs> want Thank to Thank you so ask, much for joining us tonight. Uh, Megan, where can people find you online? Oh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Megan underscore MB. Yeah, thank you for, for having us. Yeah, it's, it's super great to have you and, and to talk about you in a way that didn't involve us trying to rework a story. <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at Peach Child um, and some variation of Peach Child all over the internet. But yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And thanks for letting Megan and me yell a lot. Yeah. We're together. Anytime. Yeah, this was, it, it's been wonderful having y'all on. Seriously, thank you so much. And now I want to I want to have you guys back to watch Jupiter's ending now. Yeah, let's do Anytime. it. Anytime. I'm it's in. It's not technically a horror movie, but you know. We'll have to Any make a red podcast. If <laughs> it's not, Jeremy, if it's not a horror movie, then why do I hear Eddie Redmayne's voice in my nightmares? It's <laughs> <laughs> a listen, great question. I listen, Les Miserables is my favorite musical of all time. And I've watched that movie so many times. And every time Eddie Redmayne comes up, I feel like screaming <laughs> in my heart. So yeah, I'll probably scream while watching that movie. <laughs> I hear that's how most people feel about uh, Russell Crowe's performance in that movie. So. Listen, I think Russell Crowe is, uh, we'll be here all night. I'll defend <laughs> Russell Crowe in <laughs> death. But Eddie Redmayne, I will like kick into a ditch. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> <laughs> be here all night if I get too hard on <laughs> to walk talking about the lamest movie. <laughs> all right. Uh <laughs> Ben, did you want to do your uh, your rundown of where people can find you? Yes, uh, Renegade Rule is out in stores uh, and on Comixology, so check that out for a queer esports action comedy from myself, Rach, from Dark Horse Comics, and keep an eye out for the graphic novel uh, tie-in to Immortals Phoenix Rising coming out this September. Awesome. And uh, Emily, what about yourself? Megamoth on Twitter, Tumblr, Patreon, and the internet, megamoth.net, mega underscore moth on Instagram. And that's it. All right. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58. It's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. You can also find me at jeremywhitley.com. And uh, currently you can pre-order the second book of School for Extraterrestrial Girls, which is coming out uh, late this summer, early this fall from Paper Cuts and will be uh, part of your free comic book day coming up real soon um as for the podcast itself we're on patreon at patreon.com slash progressively horrified and you can follow us on twitter at prog horror pod if you haven't got enough of us already uh the website is progressively horrified.transistor.fm please be sure wherever you're listening to this to rate and subscribe and review uh that is how more people find the podcast so we appreciate you doing that um and thank you again to elizabeth and megan for joining us it was so much fun having you guys on yeah Thank you. Anytime. And uh, thank you as always to Ben and Emily for being here. It's a ball. Uh, we love all of you guys. We will see you again next week. And until then, stay horrified. I will trip on that ball. Progressively Horrified is created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emily Martin, Megan Brown, and Elizabeth Bry. 
All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinions of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and is provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Support us on Patreon or contact us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com.